John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. <laughs> Welcome to a very special tribute to the great Angela Lansbury, who we lost just a few weeks ago. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host in San Diego, California. And, um, you know, I'm 96 years old, days before her 97th birthday. You could argue, you know what? She lived an incredible life, left an incredible legacy, but I'm still sad because yeah. of the incredible life and the incredible legacy and having her energy in the world was a wonderful thing. And to lose it, um, you know, just makes us, I think a lot of us who loved her really sad. She, she was a pretty amazing person with a fascinating career. And it's funny, uh, the, a, a bunch of these last ones of these tributes we've done have been for these actors who had these long, yeah. varied working actor careers that I just admire so much. Cause we talked about Ed Asner and Cloris Leachman, and we just lost, which is another one, which we're going to try to work into our busy schedule. We just lost, Louise Fletcher, who's another yes. one who just, you know, these really long careers. Um, and man, Angela Lansbury is fascinating. She was mm -hmm. born in London, 1925. Her mom was an actress. Her dad was from a powerful, wealthy political family. Her grandfather was the head of the Labor Party at the turn of the century, you know? Yeah. Um, and they moved to the U.S. to escape the Blitz. So in the 40s, and, and, and this is what's so crazy about Angela Lansbury, is how long her career really was. Mm -hmm. You know, because she basically met the author of the play Gaslight and it was about to go become a movie. And he calls up George Cukor, Cukor and says, you should cast Angela Lansbury in this movie at 17. And that's how she got her first movie role, wow. which she was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for. And this is in the 40s. Some people are just talented. Some people just are born with that talent and that it thing that you can't explain. Uh, and she was one of those people. And I don't mean movie star. I mean, actor. That's what yeah. she was. And she had that energy. And she, when you saw her work, there was just this unexplainable attraction in terms of her talent that you had to her had for her as an actress. Like you wanted to see 
what she could do with these roles. You wanted to see where she could take them. And, you know, a lot of us didn't discover her younger stuff as we were older, you know, yeah. and, and, and seeing her in Bedknobs and Broomsticks. And my mom used to watch Murder, She Wrote, religiously every every Sunday evening uh, that it was on. And I think it was on Sunday nights. And then and and for me, it, going back as a film fan and watching The Manchurian Candidate or watching Gaslight or watching um, The Picture of Dorian Gray, right. which is one of my fa- closet favorite films growing up because of the of the reveal at the end and one of right. my favorite novels to read as well so there was so much about her that was a part of my life and then of course beauty and the beast so it's just fascinating to see these incredible actors who survive through so many decades because they have this incredible talent they understand the business and people naturally gravitate to them because they have that just incredible energy it's funny i meant to ask you this when we started but then i forgot it which is do you remember how you first came to angela lansbury I think it has to be bed knobs and broomsticks. Just remember, because I mean, when I was a kid, that was what you did is watched all those Disney films oh, yeah. that were on TV, Channel 5. You'd have Walt introduce them, you know, uh, and then you'd watch them, you know. And so for me, I remember wa- that was one of those ones that just kind of stuck with me, like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, you know, those, those, I don't think that's Disney, but still, it's those kinds of films that just kind of stuck with you because they were fantastical. And this idea of mixing animated with real life, you know, it was just, so cool to see. And so with bed knobs and broomsticks, I know for me, that has to be my first experience with Angela Lansbury. It, it totally is for me. And, and I wonder if you had this experience because I'm a couple of years older than you, but not a ton yeah, right. is w- we had the thing where sometimes on a rainy day or sometimes on like the last day of school where they mm-hmm. would bring the 16 millimeter projector into the auditorium oh, uh. and you'd sit on the floor and watch a movie. Did you have this happen? Oh, of course. Yes. If we weren't singing, uh, Woody Guthrie songs in in Southern Virginia. <laughs> we were watching uh, films in the auditorium um, when it was raining, when it was, or when it was snowing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't have the snowing thing yeah. where I grew up, but but I remember seeing Bedknobs and Broomsticks sitting on the floor of the auditorium at Reed School in Tiburon, and uh, and so that's totally where I first came to her. Yeah. And, and and it's crazy to me that in her career, particularly in the '40s, I think she basically got the she's not quite pretty enough to be the leading woman that right. was, you know, right. and, and then she starts getting cast even in her twenties as women in their forties. Yeah. And she's playing the mother of, and it sounds like her, it sounds like it was pretty rough on her. Mm-hmm. I mean, two best supporting actress nominations in her early career. And then she's not finding work, you know, that's Hollywood, right? I mean, Hollywood decides where you belong and where you fit back then. Certainly. I think nowadays there's much more, and especially on the British side of things, there's much more of an approach to cast people who are uh, like Angela Lansbury was just kind of, and she was pretty in her own way, of course, but kind of just these regular looking people that have this incredible talent. I think she'd be leading so many shows in on British television and maybe leading some of these British movies if she was in her youth now. You yeah, know, I think that's I think the so. difference now that we've opened the door for more of a wider acceptance of people's looks, you know, to lead certain things. And she was just one of those, you know. And, and by the way, I think she is beautiful. Yeah, I course. think she's an unusual beauty, but I think she is beautiful. I love this quote. I read this quote from her. This is about her career at that mm. at this era. She said, I wanted to play the Gene Arthur role, and they kept casting me as venal bitches. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's a great quote. But she understood the business, and she yeah. worked, and she knew as long as I'm working, the opportunities will be there. And especially yep. if she's gotten that kind of 
um, response from uh, uh, award bodies to nominate her, she must have fe- sensed, oh, I can do this. Now let's yeah. wait uh, let's wait for that moment. Wait for that moment. You know. And then she, in the 50s, it sounds like she went, well, I just got to work. And so yeah. that's when she really started doing theater a lot. It's when she started doing uh, TV work. She terminated her contract with MGM, which was fairly unheard of. MGM's a huge studio. Yeah. And she said, you're not servicing my career. I'm out. Yeah. You know? Um, and she did, by the way, what, and again, she still continues to be cast as older women. <laughs> one of the ones I love that she did in the mid fifties is 1956 in the court jester with Danny yes. Kay. Oh God. What a great film. I love the court jester. Maybe we my favorite Danny Kay film. Maybe it's, I think it is my favorite Danny Kay. Um, we talked about doing it on the cinephiles for years and hopefully we will not talk about it for more years. And at some point, maybe in 2023, we'll get to it. Cause I do love that movie. I do too. Um, she does starts doing musical theater in the late 50s, early 60s, she did Anyone Can Whistle, which is an early Sondheim one. Yeah. And then in 62 is the movie that I think we're going to try to do. I don't know when we're going to get it in our schedule, but that is The Manchurian Candidate. Yeah, The Manchurian Candidate, I remember that was a movie for me that when, as I've talked about on the show many times, when I started to become an actual cinephile studying films, like going back and watching these films and being a Sinatra fan, I was like, I've got to watch this movie. So I went in looking forward to seeing Sinatra playing a very serious role in The Manchurian Candidate. And I came out so impressed by what Angela Lansbury did in the film and what she was able to convey with the restrictions of the 1960s, this like sexual connection between her and her son that was just bubbling under the surface that I was like, wow. You know, when people talk about 2022 and we're breaking taboos, you know, go back and study your film history. A lot of that we did all we were doing back then just more subtly because we couldn't show that stuff too overtly like we can now. So this idea, this film broke so much, so many barriers and so many interesting um, taboos that were exposed, some of them that had been bubbling around in our society for a while. Um, she had, by the way, uh, read the book and loved the book. And it sounds like kind of campaigned for that movie, despite the fact that she was only three years older than the actor who played her son. Lawrence Harvey. Yeah. It, during the 60s. Uh, that, by the way, she earned her third uh, supporting actress nomination, uh, which I th- forget who she lost to. Patty Duke. Oh, it's Patty Duke. Yeah. Um, it's a good and, film itself. Yeah. It is a good film. I haven't seen that one in forever. Yeah. Um, and and then she gets her first Tony Award on Broadway for Maine, which she was yeah. did the musical with B. Arthur, yeah. uh, which apparently they had a lifelong friendship. And I would hanging out with B. Arthur and Angela Lansbury. Oh, that would have been awesome. I'd have, I'd have tagged along for anything. I'd have sat in the corner just hanging out with those two. Yeah. Brassy bees, for lack of a better term, but to just sit with them and hear them talk about the world and give their honest opinions yeah. on the nonsense of the business, man. Um, and as we mentioned, 71, she does Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Yeah. And then she declined of the role that was given to someone we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, which is she was offered the role of Nurse Ratchet yeah. in, in wow. Cuckoo's Nest and turned it down. <laughs> um uh, in 79, this is, this is another place that I saw her early. I've now told the story many times of going to see Sweeney Todd uh, when I was 11. And that is uh, she, that was her and Len Carey where she won in her fourth Tony Award. For that. That's still my favorite version of Sweeney Todd. I have oh, yeah. you can find it on YouTube, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to go watch the whole thing. Uh, but I, ha- I bought the uh, record and I have the CD uh, of their version of everything. Len Carew's Pretty Woman is fantastic. Oh. 
Uh, and uh, Angela's all the songs that Angela sings. Yep. No offense to Helena Bonham Carter, who did a good job in the movie. Hel- what Angela brings to Mrs. Lovett is just incredible. Incredible. Oh, yeah. It is so amazingly, funnily, de- scarily sick, that, <laughs> that musical. Like, it, it does this incredible... I mean, and I just imagine... It's one where I really imagine, like, so wait, you want to do what? <laughs> do you want to do a musical about a guy who murders... A barber who murders people and this woman yeah. who cuts them up and cooks them into pies and people eat something? What? People <laughs> put this on Broadway? Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, And then we're into the 80s and Murder, She Wrote. Yes. I mean, I didn't, I've seen episodes of it, of course, but sure. I didn't watch it. It wasn't my show. Right. But talk about a phenomenon that went on for, you know. Well, and, and it was because everyone who had grown up with her was at that age where they were beginning to watch those kinds of shows. So they went with her, right? Some of the women who were contemporaries of her, as you said, she started young in the business. You know, those 20 year olds or teenagers who were seeing mm-hmm. Her in these movies, they grew up with her. They they were with her through her career, and then boom, murder she wrote happens, uh, and there they are. I mean, we're about to have Sylvester Stallone leading his first TV show ever on Paramount Plus in The Tulsa King, and that speaks volumes of the fact that he is leading a TV show, uh, and all of us who grew up with Stallone and his, all his stuff in the seventies and eighties, we're going to be watching that show because we're going on, we're going along with him to see what he can do in this. Now, it's not murder she wrote. It's not going to be a phenomenon like murder she wrote. But it's that idea of, look, we've grown up with them. We trust yeah. them. Let's see what they're going to do with this. It'd be really cool if that was good, by the way. I think it's going to be, to be honest. It, it, what, what I've seen of it looks pretty good. Yeah, that new trailer uh, the other day, it's good. Um, and Murder, She Wrote, it goes, it runs for like 12 years. It's obviously huge. Uh, she becomes the executive producer. I think she bought the show oh, out from the company. Uh, I forget who was making it so that she was had total control over it. And then we get to the movie that we're re-releasing today, which is Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what a perfect time because, you you know, if you had known about her and her abilities in musical theater, having her come in uh, to play Mrs. Potts uh, or Ms. – yeah, Mrs. Potts, it's just so perfect. Her Her deft delivery of the lines, like when you watch the movie, she is dancing on the line – with her voice. That's a master actress yeah. showing you exactly how to voice over this character and bring it to life. Yes, the design all helps, but it's her delivery and then her singing the song so tenderly, so tenderly, Beauty and the Beast. No offense to, was it Peebo and Celine who sing it, I think? Mm. But her delivery of the song in the movie is so good. It's so honest and earnest. And it comes from that place of her wanting this romance to happen. So her, uh, her, what her boss, the prince or whatever can finally come back and be normal again. So it's just, there's so much in the performance of the song. And of course, that's why you cast someone like her. She has such control over her, her instrument. I would yeah. say, Oh yes. Like it's just, and, and if you listen to her doing Sondheim, which is super, super hard stuff. Yeah is that she manages to she's never showy i don't think she's always in control mm-hmm. she's always in character she always means everything she's singing it's amazing yeah um and then she just keeps on working she's in you know nanny mcphee and all these others continually doing theater continually doing television yeah i saw her again it was the touring company i was visiting uh, my family up in the bay area it had it had, i don't think it could have been more than 10 years ago yeah. in blythe spirit on stage oh wow and she's in her 90s at the time. I think it was like five or six years ago. I think it was fairly recent. She's in her 90s. And every time she came on stage, 
she was killing it. Like, I mean, you know how hard it is to do theater. Oh, yeah. And to do six shows a week. And she had a like an energetic role. And she just came out and blew the doors off and then walked off stage. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And that speaks to the talent of it all. And um, she is she apparently has a cameo in the new Ryan Johnson sequel to Knives Out, Glass Onion. She has a cameo in that. So just like most of the actors that we've profiled here who've passed away, there's still projects to come with them appearing in them, even though they've passed on. So that speaks. And it's perfect to have, you know, Murder, She Wrote, Angela Lansbury in a mystery film. It's just genius. Um, I just I just looked it up, by the way. Uh, we're re-releasing Beauty and the Beast. John, do you have any guess on when we recorded this episode of Beauty and the Beast? Oh, Jesus. Uh, 2019. It's 2018. January 4th, 2018. Ugh. We recorded this thing. Uh, and this is, of course, with uh, special guest Michael Vogel. Yes. It is early days. It's our 38th episode. So... It is definitely on the shorter side. It is not, you know, an epic exploration. But my memory is that we had a really, really good conversation. I think so, too. Uh, well, and our preview might be longer than the episode. I don't <laughs> it's <know>. possible. <laughs> well, speaking of which, without further ado, the cinephiles are very, very proud to honor the great Angela Lansbury and take you back to a tale as old as time with Beauty and the Beast. Tale as old as time, song as old as rhyme, beauty and the beast. After the cupboard with you now, Chip. It's past your bedtime. Good night, love. <laughs> Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, its history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hey gang, uh, it's John Roca. Uh, I host shows here in LA. I do voiceovers and I'm an actor as well. And I can't wait to talk about this film this week. <laughs> and we're, me too. And we're very happy to welcome back to our microphone. You've become our most... A uh, frequent guest, Michael Vogel. Welcome I'm so Files. honored, and <laughs> and such a wide variety of films too. I know it's been all over the place, and really, this is where we should have started because yeah. because you are, I'm going to say, an animation expert, and you, we are doing mm. today our first animated film. Yeah, I'm very excited. I will I will say I would I would uh, I would go by animation nerd sure. over expert, but, sure. I'll, but I'll take it. But sure. I'll take it. Um, does it say that on your business card? Yep, it does. Good. You're Excellent. the Alec Baldwin of our show. Like, you're coming on hosting. Like, it's the third time that you've been on the show as a guest, wow. right? Yeah. So it's like, do I, we, do we I have think. to dress up as Trump next? Be, <laughs> no. Whew, no. Thank God, goodness. No. No. I, don't, I don't think there's a movie that applies. All right. Um, and uh, today's movie is uh, we're talking a lot about what our first animated film should be. And with the live action film coming out uh, this week, it seemed like Beauty and the Beast was the one. So. Yeah. 1991. So, yeah. I can't believe it was that old. It's that old. Yeah. I hadn't seen it in a while, and then I watched it in preparation for this podcast, and I was like, 1991? Yeah. yeah. Isn't there something, by the way, when you say, I can't believe it's that old, that what you're really saying is, I can't believe I'm that old? Yes. Well, fair. That yes, is true. essentially the point. Yes. Yeah. Because I was a grown-up, you know, when yeah. this movie came out, and this movie came out 26 years ago. Yep. That's a long time. Grunge long is like time. two decades old. That's madness to me. Grunge? <laughs> That's a whole other podcast. That's true. Anyway, yes. On the Grunge Files. Sorry, sorry. Um, so, Michael Vogel, how did you first come to Beauty and the Beast? Uh, my mom dropped me off at the mall. 
<laughs> by that's, yourself? That's how. Actually, no, no, not by myself. So okay. uh, to, to, anyone, to anyone who knows me, this will shock you. But when I was in middle school, I would organize giant groups of people to go to the movies. No. <laughs> um, and uh, there was a big crew. And actually, I remember that this particular weekend, I don't remember the weekend it came out. I know it was November. But there were two movies coming out that weekend that everyone was excited about. Mm. Uh, Adam's Family. Really? And oh. Beauty and the Beast. Wow. Actually, there were three. I believe American Tale 2, Five Will Goes West also came out that weekend, wow. but I saw that the next day with my family. Wow. Two competing so, animated uh, films. They put that out the same week as Beauty and the Beast? It was a different time 26 years ago. Like, oftentimes, yeah. those movies came out. I believe Great Mouse Detective came out uh, the same weekend, if not, if not the same weekend, then right around the same time as American Tale. Oh. And Little Mermaid and... Uh, I don't remember what Little Mermaid, Land Before Time, and Oliver and Company were also the same weekend. Wow. So, anyways, animation nerd, uh, like I said, animation nerd, validated. Um, but uh, yeah, so we we actually a bunch of us went to the mall and we did Beauty and the Beast first, mm-hmm. had dinner, and then did Adam's Family, and actually you know oh, went, wow. went with the better movie first. Although I love the Adam's Adam's Family mm-hmm. live action Adam's Family movie. Uh, Beauty and the Beast is definitely the classic. Yeah. Um, how about you? Uh, I would have to, I, to be honest with you. I don't remember. I know it was a long time ago, and I probably watched it as like on TV or something on one of the Disney channels because I it wasn't something that I'd necessarily gone to see, go see, which is ironic because I'd seen Aladdin and I'd seen what was the other one? Well, Aladdin came after. Yeah, Aladdin. Yeah, I saw. I took someone to see. I took a date to see Aladdin. Aladdin. That's the first time I ever fell in love. I took the, the girl Doy. The girl of the movie. No, the well, both. Okay, I really fair. love Aladdin. Too, I pieces. love Aladdin too. But at the time, I don't think I was. I was one of those like macho guys because I was in the military and I was like, I'm not going to take a. You know, a girl to go see Beauty and the Beast. Like it just didn't occur to me to do that. You right? were you were Gaston. <laughs> hey, that's right. You are the Duke brute, brute Squad. Yeah, yeah. So like, I, I don't know, but I know later on, and when I was studying film, I came back and found this, and I watched it, and I enjoyed it very much. And but the soundtrack has always been the thing that has stuck with me it, more than the movie because I love Jerry Orbach. Obviously, he's a huge Lauren sure. Order fan. But be our guest is one of my favorite songs. Period, bar none. Uh, and it just it just has always stayed with me because of the production value of it all. So for me, as a soundtrack, it stays with me more than the movie. Yeah. So so for me, I always loved uh, animated movies. Mm. The Little Mermaid was what I asked who is my current wife out for our first date. Oh wow! Which she said no because she had already seen it. Right. Because because unlike my military friend, I thought <laughs> that an animated movie is the perfect thing to take a girl to. <laughs> She said no, and instead we went to see The War of the Roses. Oh. <laughs> Not a date night. No. No. Naturally, we didn't start dating for years later. <laughs> um, but it all worked out because we're married now. Right. Um, uh, and so I was really excited to see Beauty and the Beast. Saw it definitely in the theater. And just and I, and I can so remember the moment of which we're going to get to, but going to the song Beauty and the Beast when they go into the mm. the 3D space suddenly and it just it just blew my mind. Yeah. And I'm not sure that I don't put it as like my favorite of the Disney animated movies, but mm. it is such a classic and well-constructed one that it's it's archetypal, I think. Yeah. It may be my favorite. It's tough. It, it, it's usually I think when it comes to Disney animated films, it's down to that and Lion King oh, as yeah. my favorites, although I love Aladdin, right. I love Little Mermaid, I love a bunch of them, but mm-hmm. from that era, that's that sort of golden age of, you know, when Disney made its big comeback after right. Black Cauldron almost broke the animation oh, studio. Yeah. And then they kind of clawed their way back with Great Mouse Detective and Oliver and Company and Little Mermaid really kind of was the Disney animation is back. And then with Beauty and the Beast, it kind of solidified that. And mm-hmm. I, Beauty and the Beast, I think I saw it like eight times in the movie theater. Wow. So, wow. Wow. Well, and that's you brought up exactly what I wanted to talk about because there's this 
you know, obviously Disney invents the animated feature with Snow White yeah. and then has these classic golden age of animation. And then Disney dies. The last one he works on is, is Jungle Book. And then we have sort of this slow descent. And I, what do, what do you think's happening there in that era? It's not that they're not good movies. Some of them are not good movies. Yeah. yeah. Black Cauldron is not a great movie. I mean, I, I actually like it for a lot of the things that it tried to do. But I think really what it was... Uh, was that Disney had kind of lost its creative sense. I mean, it was kind of run by businessmen. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a thing that happens a lot of entertainment companies and studios is where you start from a very creative place and then eventually you become a corporation. And eventually right. there's a bunch of corporate guys that are running things. And, you know, I mean, there was a point in time where it looked like Disney just wasn't going to do animation anymore. I mean, that mm -hmm. it was, it was, they were, they were shuttering down their doors. Wow. And uh, it was, it was, it was it was like I was saying all the movies that I was just naming. It was sort of like incremental. Like they came out with Great Mouse Detective, which was sort of a you know you were hitting a single. Like right. Black Cauldron mm. was a disaster, and they yeah. came out with Great Mouse Detective and said, okay, let's just let's just try and make something solid here. And they yeah. made a very very cute movie that felt like a Disney movie. Unfortunately, as far as mice animated film went, films went, American <laughs> Tale trumped it. Right. Yeah. And so they still weren't top dog. And then uh, I believe the next one was Oliver and Company. I'm pretty sure, yeah. which uh, was actually a great movie. Billy Joel, Bette Midler, a lot of really cool songs. Right. One of Disney's first animated films that was set place in modern day New York. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a retelling of Oliver with animals. Right. And it did really well. It didn't do as well as Land Before Time. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and then Little Mermaid came out. And I think that you can't really talk about Disney's renaissance in this era without talking about Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. Absolutely. Yeah. Particularly Howard Ashman. And I think that him coming to Disney with Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin uh, really was the transformative thing because he was much more than a lyricist. He was much more than the song guy. He was an executive producer on Little Mermaid. He was an executive producer on Beauty and the Beast. He shaped those movies. Yeah. And you can't... It's it's just it, that's part of the Disney magic that was that came back. And even though Disney went on to make a bunch of great films after that, there was definitely a little something lost when he was taken yeah. from this world too early. Yeah, yeah. And a little bit of background on them. So Ashman and Menken, they're uh, Broadway composers. They did Little Shop of Horrors, which is their big claim to fame. I just found out, which I didn't know, they did uh, a musical of God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, the Kurt Vonnegut book, which huh. I just can't. I can't imagine what that's exactly random, that's random like. Thing. And you're right. I mean, the, the everything I've read about Ashman is that he was a character guy and a story guy and understood really the tone of the movies. And you see, I love Little Mermaid. Mm. I love the songs in Little Mermaid. It's a lot of fun. And while there are things that we might talk about in terms of, you know, how the sexes are portrayed at this point, you know, looking back in it, it's still a lovely, lovely movie. And 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 that clearly seems to be the turn. And one of the things I think about it is that I don't think Disney thought he was making movies for kids. I think he wanted kids to love his movies, but he wanted everybody to love his movies. And there's yeah. a feeling of those movies kind of in the less good era that it was, just as you say, those executives going, okay, let's make the next kid thing. And they right. didn't have that, what we call now like the four-quadrant appeal or whatever. And Little Mermaid definitely does. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. It definitely does. And then we move into Beauty and the Beast, which, which Walt had wanted to do with Beauty and the Beast – Back in the day, they never quite figured how to oh, do wow. it. They, they'd written a script to do it in the 80s as a non-musical. And then after... Well, right before, I mean, it was literally that non-musical version. So, yeah, they, Walt could never figure it out, mainly because the Beauty and the Beast story is 
thin. Yeah. There, there's no second right. act. Basically, the entire second act of the movie is Belle going to dinner with the Beast every night, and, say, and the Beast says, will you marry me? And she says, no. And then she goes home, the Beast almost dies, she comes back and says, yeah, I'll marry you. Mm. So trying to flesh that out was something that they just could never crack. Right. And even this uh, live-action script that they wrote... Uh, around the same time that Little Mermaid was happening there, that was when it was all going on. Yeah. They actually did about 20 minutes, which you can look up on uh, yeah. YouTube. They did about 20 minutes of a story reel that they presented to Jeffrey Katzenberg. And they were like, look, let's, we know it's rough. Let's show it to him. What's the worst that could happen? It's not like he's going to scrap the whole thing and start over. And he looked at it and he said, we're going to scrap this whole thing and start over. <laughs> right. I mean, it just, it just didn't, it just didn't fly. And Ashman and Mencken had done a great job with Little Mermaid. Ashman was like very excited about this project that he really wanted to do, Aladdin. Aladdin, yeah. And they let they Jeffrey Katzenberg had to convince him to not jump into Aladdin yet and actually focus on Beauty and the Beast and turn it into a musical. And yeah. he was the one who came in uh, with Linda Wolverton, the screenwriter, and basically said, "Hey." What about these enchanted objects, which up until this point in the live action script had just been these kind of ethereal things floating around and doing whatever. And he said, well, look, these guys can fill out a second act and be the characters Mm. that we can really relate to in a lot of ways. And they can really we can do a lot of musical numbers with them. And that actually fixed pretty much all the problems that Walt couldn't figure out. It's Mm. such a it's such a basic fix. It is something I come across with my students all the time, which is they introduce a character but they don't give that character any character. Yeah. They don't ask questions about who they are and what they want and how they speak and what is their style and what is their, you know, their their humor, their actions, their movements, all those things. Because they go, well, I need a character here to do this thing. And it's like, well, that's why you, the writer, needs the character. You haven't talked about what the character wants or what they need. And when they start to figure that out, then suddenly yeah. the story has movement yeah. and joy and all those things. Can you imagine not having those characters in this film. Yeah. I mean, it just... I don't, think it, I don't think the film is anywhere near as good without those characters. Yeah. And in fact, I think it's the... It, I, when I was watching it at work, uh, one of the women walking by who was shown it to her daughter like a million times saw that I was watching it and she was like, oh my God, and talked... And she said, it's the, it's the character, it's the side characters, the supporting characters that for her are the joy of the film. That, that you know, Belle and, and the Beast are interesting, but Gaston, Lumiere, Cogsworth... You know, all the even the French made uh, brush. Like all, they all have incredible life, and they all have very distinct characters right off the bat, so you can gravitate to them, and they carry you through the movie in the times when the Beast is like either angry or trying to figure things out, and while Belle is like being dramatic or or leaving. You know, it's uh, those kinds of things, and they flesh well, you, it out. You really don't like Belle or the Beast very no, much, no, do I'm you? No, no, I'm not. Saying, I'm not saying anything negative. I'm just saying this is how it's presented. But I think they soften both of them. I think because like because you without them, there's no way Belle comes closer to. The beast and there's no way the beast comes closer well, to bell i think what really they do important. i don't I, I don't know that i would say soften them because well, I actually think you're Belle, not saying it i'm saying it. okay i would disagree with that but that's but fair that's i fair. do think but i do think what is interesting is that uh what those characters do allow you to do with the beast as a character is make him uh a bratty kid right yes because without the adult there to kind of say hey yeah why don't you chill out a little bit right he would be just an oppressively evil character. Yes. He, it wouldn't. It wouldn't really work. But having them there to sort of say, "Hey, let's control that temper. Yeah. Hey, let's invite her to dinner. Hey, let's be a good guy." It really brings out this sort of adorable side to mm-hmm. someone who could be just a very overt villain. Right. Yeah. That's that's. I think that's the balance you're walking in this film. Well, let, let's get into it. Okay. So we start with a prologue. Yep. Uh, and the the voice is David Ogden Stiers, yeah, who yeah. we're going to get uh, later on, and it sets up a very 
specific, this is the problem we have to solve in the film. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, this was actually one of the big fights with uh, the directors, uh, uh, Gary Truesdale and Kirk Wise and Howard Ashman, right off the bat, is that Howard Ashman was very uh, set on needing, wanting to see the beast as a prince before he turned into a beast. And the directors couldn't get this idea out of there the way they they called it, like Eddie Munster and Lord Fauntleroy clothing. Like they just had this idea of like a little beast boy running around and how it would be cheesy and gross. And uh, they actually talk about how Howard Ashman like lost it in a meeting and screamed at them because it was so important to him. And he was known for being very opinionated and having a temper. Um, And the stained glass window sort of allowed it to work because they didn't, you didn't have to see this little boy turn into a beast in his little outfit and run down the hall crying. It was very stylized. Right now. It's an abstract way to get into it. And it brings up mm-hmm. something that I sort of, this is sort of a geeky screenwriting thing. But one of the, one of the questions that you always ask screenwriters, which I don't always think is appropriate, because it's not always the right thing you need to figure out, is who is the story about? Whose movie is this? Yeah. And obviously, this seems like it's Bell's movie. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of ways, you can look at this movie as this is the beast story. And the fact that we start with him and his essential problem, and that is the problem throughout the movie that we have to solve, in a lot of ways, it's his story. And actually, again, I'll probably talk about Howard Ashman 90,000 times in this podcast, (laughs) but uh, he brought a lot of that to the movie. I think that he was the one who really focused on the Beast. There's actually a beautiful, there's a lot of stuff on, if you Google Beauty and the Beast right now with the live action one coming out, they actually talk about this a good bit, but, you know, he was in the throes of... Uh, having AIDS during this whole process. And he actually hadn't, he didn't tell Alan Menken until the day after they won the Oscar for Little Mermaid. But this, uh, (sighs) this, this movie about this character where yes, traditionally Belle is the main character, but this guy who had this curse Mm. that was going to ruin him where everyone had forgotten him. And there was just this slim hope down the line that someone was going to see him for who he really, like all of these things, like, there was a lot of heavy shit that was being laid down yeah. on this movie, yeah. but it actually did help because you're right. Beauty and the Beast is 100% the Beast's movie. He's the one that changes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we have our prologue, but then we're going to go off and meet Belle. Um, well, I do want to say one thing yeah. about the prologue. What I think the prologue does, which is everything you said, Mike, is absolutely right and correct, but I think it also immediately to your eyes, to your mind, it elevates the movie to something above the genre of just an animated feature. Just from the beginning, sure. you're being treated to this incredibly stylized glass that we know as art. Subconsciously, we see, we have learned this or seen this as art. And I think once we start out in that place, already mentally, we're dealing with something a little bigger, a little grander, mentally. Well, and even that opening shot, that multi-plane camera shot that kind oh, of just great. goes through yes. the forest. By the way, yeah. a great cameo by Bambi's mom. Um, I know. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, but then you go in and yeah, you're hundred percent right. It's just, it's this beautiful artwork. Yeah. It kind of puts you right in that fairy tale mindset. Well, yeah. and, and I would say, I was thinking about it watching it this time that this is the most classic Disney that we'd seen in a long time yeah. Yeah. because we're going back to the storybook and we're going back to the European castle in the forest yeah. kind of which, storybook. Which, by the way, only the fifth actual fairy tale storybook Disney movie. Wow. Hmm. Snow White. Cinderella, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast. Wow. It's very funny when okay. you think about it, because I, I think I do the same thing. We talk about the Disney princess, we talk about the Disney fairy right. tale movie. But when you actually look at all the animated feature films, yeah. straight up princesses, right. this is the fifth one. Yeah. Um, so speaking of our straight up princess, we get to meet Belle and she's going off into the town. And one of the things I, I, I learned this time uh, is that this is the first one they did where they did a full cast recording the way you would do a Broadway cast recording. Oh, wow. It's recording them all together, all at once, and you could really feel it in this number. Little town, it's a quiet village. Every day, 
Like the one before Little town full of little people Waking up to say Bonjour! 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 There goes the baker with his tray like always The same old bread and rolls to sell Every morning just the same Since the morning that we came To this poor provincial town Good morning, Belle Morning, monsieur Where are you off to? The bookshop I just finished the most wonderful story About a beanstalk and an ogre and That's a... nice Marie! The baguettes! Hurry up! Look, there she goes The girl is strange No question She's distracted Can't you tell? Never thought of any crowd Cause her head's upon some cloud And Howard Ashman thought that Disney was going to hate this song. He and Alan Menken really? wrote it. He and Alan Menken wrote it, and he was like, "This is not what they want. They they don't want an opening seven minute song that is a Broadway musical." Like he was he was convinced they were going to hate it, and Alan Menken was like, "No, they're going to love it. They're going to love it." Sent it in, and they were like, "Yes, a hundred percent." And it's an amazing song. It you know it introduces Belle, it introduces the town, it yeah. introduces her sort of issue with right. the town, it introduces Gaston. Yeah. Like it just yep. does so much, and it's it's actually in my top five Disney songs of all time. Really? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's amazing. Oh, it's joyful and fun. Yeah. And and getting to be Gaston, I I won't say he's my favorite Disney villain. He's one of them, but the thing about him is I've never met an Ursula. I've never met, you know what I mean? I've never maybe kind of a Corella Deville, but not really. Like but but, you've or, met but I have met a Gaston. Well, yeah, okay, I know those guys. Andreas Deja, who is the lead animator on Gaston, who's one of the most yeah. well-respected animators in the world. Uh, actually, it's a funny story. It's funny that you should say that. He had a really hard time. He was designing Gaston, and he was designing this very buffoonish, cartoony character because you know you're like you've got this larger than life right. guy who's very stuck right. on himself. And Jeffrey Katzenberg kept pushing back and saying, "No, no, no! This guy's got to be real. This guy's got to be real." And he finally found his inspiration right here at the gyms in sunny Los Angeles yes. <laughs> because so many dudes were looking at themselves in the mirror and preening that he finally said, "Oh, that's what it is," and that's yeah. what he designed. So yeah. you're 100 percent right. That's the thing about Gaston is he's you. We all know gaston's yeah. yeah he's not and he's not big evil he's not like he is no he is asshole evil he's yeah. regular evil he's like i want what i want evil and he's a misogynist and he's mm-hmm. like old school stuff which which where the time that it's set is not necessarily out of the realm of possibility to have that mindset which i think is interesting. or, or today. today or today sure yeah. i'm sorry yes today as well today i think though it's it's rarer and more more frowned upon, whereas back then or where they said it, it seemed natural. Do you know what I'm saying? Things have changed. Yes, it's basically because I mean those three girls when they but, sing, those three girls sing like, why? What's wrong with Bell? I would be all over that guy. Why aren't they with him? Well, why isn't and she again, with him, right? Certainly, we see that. We, and those three I, girls I mean, are what, not not beautiful. What we could certainly watch lots of asshole guys preening at the gym who get lots of girls. Yeah. This is all seems <laughs> all too normal. Yes. Um, another great thing about this sequence in the film, which I love, is that uh, you know color always plays a big part in animated films, and Belle is the only person in her village that's wearing blue. Oh, oh nice! Uh, now it, that you say it, that, actually, uh, really obvious. Not only does it help you track her in those crowd shots yeah. from a technical standpoint, sure. but also it represents that she does. She is the outlier. She doesn't fit right. in with mm-hmm. the rest of the town. Well, and this is something I was thinking about that I'm glad you that's brought great. up. Is pretty much if you look at all the Disney movies. We're always looking at outsiders. 
Mm-hmm. That is, we yep. ne- we never have someone who feels comfortable in their skin. Mm-hmm. And if they are an insider, then we have to do something to make them an outsider. That they're going to have the death of a parent, or they're going to have big floppy ears that you know that, that allow mm-hmm. them to fly, mm-hmm. or they're going to get turned into a llama, or something must happen <laughs> to make you feel a like llama. An <laughs> is that? And, and and I was thinking about it a lot. Is that for for a couple of reasons? One is I think deep down all people feel like outsiders, huh? and mm. I think that. Even even the most insider person you might meet inside, they feel like an outsider. Right. And there's an instant, whether it's Harry Potter or Peter Parker or, or whoever it is, that sense of feeling not a part of it is something we can all relate to. And I also think that it's the outsiderness for, in the case of the Beast or in the case of you know, the Llama, um, Emperor's New Groove, is that being forced to be an outsider is how you get to learn the profound lessons that might be necessary to move forward. Right. You know, and so this, this idea of outsiderness is so crucial in every Disney animated film I can think of, you know, uh, and, and it definitely plays this minute you meet Belle. This, you know? this is something that I've always wondered when I watch it because I have always felt like an outsider my entire life. So when I watch these movies, I gravitate naturally to the lead. I always wonder what it's like to for the people who, in my mind, are not the outsiders, like the head of the cheerleading squad or the head of the football team or the really cool guy all the time. Like, how is well, like to just, watch they, themselves? They just go, man, this Gaston guy seems great. Yeah, well, that's what I wonder about. <laughs> Do they watch these films and go, yeah, what's wrong with that guy? Why won't he just? I mean, what's yeah. wrong, Bell? Why won't you just no, marry his dude? The, the secret truth of the world is. Yeah. They all feel like outsiders, right? Well, just, Every, everybody does. So, who are the real villains? Do we know? Because we do encounter them in real life. We do encounter the people who are the group speak. I mean, we're dealing with it oh, kind of in our country now. So it's like, no matter what side of the fence you're on, you think the other side feels like this whole groups keep group speak villain type thing, and that's it's it's interesting to me. But it's our outsiderness. I mean, outs, feel, yeah. that outsider feeling also can make turn you into the villain yes true you know what i mean because yes. then the other you know if you take it to a certain place and it's like they're all the people that are against me well, yeah. what is it yeah. i mean what is it that turns gaston into an ultimate villain he's told no yes yeah. i mean that's the thing is like gaston ultimately so you're saying bell should have married <laughs> oh, <laughs> no. no 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 i mean no he is look he is a pig at the beginning of the movie yes, he is quite literally when he sticks his head out of the mud yeah. and they have the pig there but uh he is a pig and he is a chauvinist absolutely but what turns him into a villain is he's never been told no. And so right. to your point, if we're going to get into some psychological stuff, he all of a sudden is, if, if Bell is what he wants, he's now outside. Yes. Yeah. Right. And he can't get in. Yes. And then he finds out that it's a giant buffalo that got inside. <laughs> and he's having a real hard time with that. He can't process that. So, uh, movie four, we go off, we meet Dad, who's a crazy inventor. Also, I think an addition in this version of the story didn't exist well, before. As is Gaston. And yeah. Every, yeah. And that's a lot of Ashman. I think Ashman wanted to push mm. the crazy inventor stuff. And Dad's he invents a uh, crazy old wood, wood chopping thing, yep. and now he's going to go off to the inventors fair or whatever it is. <laughs> Just yeah. randomly some fair, yeah. and he's off on a journey, and he goes into the deep dark woods, and he ends up at this crazy castle. And this is the first time we get introduced to uh, this enchanted world. It is, and actually, and I actually uh, there are two two things. One, uh, you know, Beauty and the Beast was screened and not in its entirety, which never happened at an anima- for an animated oh. film at the New York Film Festival. Mm. And I believe, so, which actually is amazing. If you want a a great sort of visual course on how animated movies are made, they decided to show this at the New York Film Festival, where it was bits were fully animated, a lot of it was just pencil animation, some of it was still storyboarded, and people went crazy. It, it was it was an amazing wow. thing. But I believe in that version, uh, or it's in a special feature that you can find. When Maurice gets to the castle and meets the objects in the original story, they take him in. They're so excited that someone is there. 
and they sing him this amazing song called Be Our Guest. Oh, yeah. And I didn't realize they'd actually animated it. Oh, no, it's yeah, yeah. you can actually see it. I knew that uh, it was supposed to go there originally. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, and it's actually, I'm trying to remember some of the lyrics where they, you know, instead of Madame, it's Monsieur and stuff like that. Mm. But like, uh, they just realized smartly that as great as this number is, watching these objects sing it to Maurice is not nearly yeah. as effective as having them get excited mm. and actually making Belle feel more comfortable in this new castle. Well, and a basic rule of the story is there's a place where the story really starts and you want to get to that place as quickly as possible. Mm. Mm. And the story starts with Belle in the castle. Mm-hmm. And so if you put Be Our Guest, you're just delaying yeah. getting there as soon as you can. So Belle lets Maurice go. Belle lets her father her absent-minded, kind of crazy father go off by himself in the fair to the fair. Yes, and then he gets lost in the woods. Yes, like she probably thought he might, and then he ends up at the castle. You're saying this is Belle's fault. I'm saying Belle is not as attentive as we would like her to be. Is what well, I'm saying. There, I think there if you are compare it, when you look at if you compare it to the beauty from the original fairy tale, she's actually doing pretty well. Yes, right. Beauty fair. from the original fairy tale. <laughs> it's absent. Dad goes off. Yeah, comes back finds this rose in this castle, is told by the beast that you stole my rose, I'm going to kill you or make you live here forever. And basically, the dad pimps out the daughter, goes home and says, so hey, <laughs> you got to go live in this right. castle now. <laughs> the fairy tales so were really actually, worse back one then. Actually, <laughs> one, of the, one, of the one of the things that they did with the Disney version was make Belle more active. So yeah. Belle, as a Disney princess, finds out that her dad has not returned. Philippe comes running back, yeah. no dad. And instantly does not go ask for help, does not go say to the town, right. my dad's gone, hops on that horse and says, take me to dad. I'm going right. to go get him. Absolutely. So I think Belle, I think Belle's still doing pretty good I on the Disney princess make, charts. She makes up for her mistake. That's for sure. Wait, but you're saying she's responsible for taking care of no, dad? No. Uh, yes. Well, I would think so. She's responsible because like when they tried to make fun of him or do whatever, she lashes out and she gets mad. She tries to defend him. and something. Yeah, defending so your knows. dad doesn't, doesn't mean that you have to watch him every day. Well, I mean. if you have a dad that's absent-minded and gets in the situation. I think we're, he, does, he does invent a wood chopping yeah, machine back does. in like I mean I, I, yeah. I mean he's pretty intelligent he blew some up and I like that this podcast has just moved to how <laughs> how how dumb or not dumb is Maurice a, well <laughs> let's move past that uh, um, I, I like the symbolism of the wolves once again this to me there's symbolism there in the wolves of his mind right this is the beast this is to what I got this time watching it was the wolves of his mind everything because Everything is so dark from the Enchantress to what she did to him. It has only progressed and gotten worse and worse and stretched out all the way out into his property past the gate. And so this is, to me, when the wolves come and they're doing what they're doing, it was the first time I'm watching. I'm like, oh, man, these are like the wolves of his mind, man. The beast trying mind. to st- Yeah, the beast trying to stop things from coming to him. Do you know hmm. what I'm saying? Because he is so lost in his feeling that no one will ever come. He is like doomed to live this life. He will die soon. The petal will, The petals will fall off. He is initially like, right? That's why he reacts the way he reacts when Maurice is in the castle. He doesn't react in a positive way that there's a visitor. He says, you're trespassing, and I'm going to throw you into the thing. There's no kind of kindness in him at all well, because no, this he is, does not want but, to contact, connect with anybody. Well, of course, yeah, Because it absolutely. leads to hurt, and I, that's what I saw this time. I think that's absolutely true. I'm not sure about the, the wolves part, but although that's an interesting interpretation, but, the, but definitely what the beast is feeling, yeah. that definitely seems true. And this is the thing that I think you brought up earlier is they're walking this fine line of how far do you push the beast until he is so evil he cannot be redeemed? Yes. And he is right. Well, his treatment of Maurice at the beginning, yeah. man, we're, we're right on that edge. Mm-hmm. So while, while dad is gone, Gaston has his big plan. Oh, yeah. Which is he's going to propose. Um, and it, it's just so horrible to watch this thing <laughs> play out. I mean, you, you know, you know she's going to crush him, and rightly yeah. so, but... But man, the arrogance and the meanness and the 
Uh, what a what a horrible person Gaston is. And what's great was I love about what they do with Gaston is that moment when he walks into the uh, to the house with Belle's house. And her reaction was so fantastic. And uh, how many of us have not have not I've known many women who react that way when they're talking about someone who tried to hit on them. And it's great. And when he sits and puts his feet up, and there's a hole in the sock, like the hole in the sock to I me. Do, you know what's so funny it's is so I actually was me. thinking about the hole in the sock yeah, too. Like it, I really think it's a great detail. It's a perfect detail because it lets you know that he is not like he is. A, there is flaws to this guy. Even in this moment of arrogance, he has these flaws with this hole in his sock, which I think is brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I do think Belle's reaction to this whole thing oh, is great. Yeah. Uh, you oh, know, yeah. just and he's laying out he's laying out a great future for her. Hey, I want you to pop out six babies and uh, <laughs> yeah. make kitchen. me make me my dinner, yeah. woman. I mean, you know, just like it's 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 just terrible, and it just leads really well to her the to her to her reprise of yeah. Uh, yeah. you know she wants she wants adventure in the great wide somewhere. Yeah. She wants it more than she can tell. It's just it flows really really well. Yeah. I want adventure in the great wide somewhere. I want it more than I can tell And for once it might be grand To have someone understand I want so much more than they've got planned Well, and that's this is the classic This is what we have in this film Of the classic Disney I want or I wish song mm-hmm. um, And this is, you know, Someday My Prince Will Come you know, I want to be where the people are. Like this, this very clear establishment of what the characters' desires yeah. are, um, and and this is something again because I think this is such a well constructed screenplay in terms of looking at how movies work. Is that understanding the basic objective of your character and having the audience understand that is super super important. Mm-hmm. And no sooner has she expressed this desire, but then Philippe shows up. And then she's at the castle. She's with dad. And Belle makes, and I think this is an incredibly heroic sacrifice. Yeah. I will be your prisoner forever. What are you doing here? Who's there? Who are you? The master of this castle. I've come for my father. Please let him out. Can't you see he's sick? And he shouldn't have trespassed here. But he could die. Please, I- I'll do anything. There's nothing you can do. He's my prisoner. Oh, there must be some way I can... Wait! Take me instead. You... You would... take his place? Oh, no! You don't know what you're doing! If I did, would you let him go? Yes. And and this is right after she had just sung how she wants to see the world yeah. and not feel different and embrace and go on an adventure... And now she's willing to throw away her dreams of going on this adventure to be stuck in this castle for the rest of her life because her father got into this situation and she wants to sacrifice herself for the father, which is very, very noble. And it right on, like this time watching it, it's incredible. Right on the heels of her stating, which we would see all the time in a Disney movie, is like, I want to, you know, go and be something else and be somewhere. And, and usually an adventure comes up and takes them. But this is a different kind of adventure than what she anticipated. And it's, it's fascinating how we go into that. And then, yeah, with the Beast acting in the sequence, I mean, you have to talk yeah. about Glenn Keane, who was the lead animator on The Beast, uh, who just brings out a and level he's of one acting. of the great. He's one, he's, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he is also one of the greats. You know, he's, he did Ariel, Aladdin, Tarzan. I mean, he's, he's, done, he's done a ton. And uh, The Beast is probably one of my favorites of his. And it really is because just, A, the design is amazing. But particularly in this scene, you see this transformation from this monster yeah. that threw Maurice into a jail cell the previous time. And and you see the 
the the hope and the longing. You see the acting in the eyes. I mean, mm. there's a level of acting going on with the beast in this movie that's really just kind of fantastic. Well, and you see it here, just even the way he like he's you know he's 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 scratching himself, not quite sure what to do. He's awkward. Nice. Like it's just all of it is amazing and actually makes up for this super villainous thing you just saw him do because yeah. you're like, oh wait, he's he doesn't really even know. Yeah. And even Robbie Benson's vocal performance. You know, once mm-hmm. uh, when when um. I love, you know, right after right after he takes Maurice away and he comes back in and Lumiere is like, you know, so since she's going to be staying with us for a while, maybe we put her in a room, give her a nice... And again, it's the, yeah. it's the object kind of being like, right now you're kind of a villain. You threw her in the dungeon. Yeah. Let's do some of this. And, you know, it's like even just the, you want to you wanna, you wanna stay in here forever? Like, what are you... I mean, he's just this gruff kind of... Yeah. He, as much as Gaston is really the monster in this whole thing... It's you know this guy is a monster, but underneath is just this sort of I don't know how to talk to women guy. Yeah. Well, and in particular, the moment that I think is so important is you didn't let even let me say goodbye. Yes. And you see this reaction from the beast, and it's the first time we yeah. see his loneliness and his sorrow and his guilt and his humanity and all that humanity, and yeah. it's so much in, in that mixture of you know animation and Robbie Benson's voice, and that's you know it's yeah. the only thing where you get multiple artists coming together to create a single performance yeah. uh, and, and the beasts can, who can be really scary and really powerful and really comedic and really sad and sensitive and vulnerable all within moments of each other. It's yeah. a, it's a great animation performance. And they do a great job of just playing throughout all of this, all the way up uh, through the inviting her to dinner scene, which is my favorite. But yes. even as he's walking her to her room, I mean, again, you have the objects there. So you have Lumiere just going, hey, so say something. Yeah. And he's like, I hope you like it here. He's trying to be very nice. And then just, West Wing's forbidden. Right. And you yeah. know, it just, it's just this back and forth of this like high temper, trying to be nice, high temper. And it's what actually makes him lovable. Yeah, and you have to remember, like, this is a guy who has not had many interactions with women, right? He was turned into this thing, what, 18 years old or however old he was? Oh, he was... He or was 16, like, he was 16, right? He was younger than that. Yeah. That's a little bit of a flaw in the timeline of that movie, but we can talk about yeah. that later. <laughs> so this whole idea is that he hasn't had a lot of experience with women, so, like... So he hasn't had anybody, a lot of experience with humans. With humans, right, as well. And this whole idea of them helping him through this process, you have to remember that he is struggling with it, that he's become this beast and had to live it this way for so long. So this idea of trying to connect, trying to, trying to make a connection with someone, regardless of whether it's going to be someone who's going to, who's going to break the spell, is still difficult for him. And, but he's willing to listen. I think that's, what, that's the number one thing about the beast, is that he's willing to listen to Lumiere and Cogsworth and, and all them giving him the advice that he needs uh, to to change because he does immediately change. He's easily directable, and that's a good thing. And that's I think that's what makes us gravitate. It's not easily to him. not easily directable, but directable. Yes, directable, I suppose. And I, and I think and I think he I think actually it's it's Bell that changes him. I mean, well, sure, they they, yes. they guide him, but it really is you know up until like once once she leaves, yes. that's the turning point for both she and the beast to yes. start changing. But right, but let's let's talk about some other stuff before we get there because there's right. some other good stuff. Well, it, yeah, I mean, I think we can. It's safe to say that being trapped in an enchanted castle as a giant beast with only animated objects servants to be who you mm-hmm. the, the entities you play against is not a way to learn humility and values and <laughs> compassion it's not really such a good system right um, but, but, we, but we you know we brought up these these characters we let's let's talk about them yeah. a little so we got lumiere you already mentioned cherry orbach what a great great oh performance amazing yeah, and then we have uh, uh, Cogsworth, who is David Ogden Stiers, and is like a huge Mash fan. Mm-hmm. I love, I love yeah. him in this film. Winchester, right? Wasn't yeah, he Winchester? Winchester. Winchester yeah. Mash, yeah. Uh, and finally, um, uh, Mrs. Potts. You have Mrs. Potts, Angela Lansbury. Yeah, 
And so so good. Th- this is a these are great supporting characters. Yeah, mm-hmm. and again, um, you know, Ashman wanted to bring in Broadway people to do a lot of these voices as much as possible, and so he was you know Angela Lands. I mean, obviously TV people as well, but right. but uh, but you know he really wanted these people that could that could sing and act and do all these things. And yeah, the characters are great, and they they're so specific. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the great things, kind of to your point, Steve, about sometimes supporting characters are like, oh, here's like the funny background characters, but each one of them. And is so specific and serves a very specific mm-hmm. role in the movie. Yeah. So Gaston is still very upset <laughs> about what happened well, with his proposal. Before we get to that, I do want to talk a little bit about because it is my favorite scene in the movie. Is I think that the the interaction between Beast and Belle on either side of the doorway when he invites her to dinner. Oh, such is, a good scene! Is mm-hmm. one of my favorite scenes in the movie, just from yep. a sheer acting standpoint for the Beast, because watching him try to control his temper. Yes. As he's being as polite as he can through gritted teeth, mm-hmm. asking her to join him for dinner. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, David Ogden Steyer's going, say please. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, please. And she's like, no. And then he just explodes. And right. that would you know, if she doesn't eat with me, she doesn't eat at all. And it's like, you just let him just completely unleash as a beast. It really is. It's a scene that, again, one of the great things about this movie is he's being the bad guy here. Mm-hmm. He's right. saying, you've got to do what I say. If you don't eat dinner with me, you're not eating dinner at all. But it's played so much for comedy yeah. that it doesn't bother you. It actually is a really, really hilarious, yeah, fun endearing. scene. Yeah, and he, you know when he's pacing in front of the fireplace, and they're trying to talk him to calm him down, and then he goes up to the door and has that whole back and forth. You're right; it's he's still a beast. He's still a child in a way, a teenager. So he's going to have his emotions at times. Well, and there, the there's, there's even a great moment where he does this sort of "it's not me, it's her" gesture, which is which is yes, which I what I what, yes, I, what right. I heard was right. And by the way, Vogel did just a beautiful version of it. And what I've heard is that they just took it right out of Jackie Gleason and the Honeymooners. Is a is a full. Perfect. Jackie yeah. Gleason movement. That's perfect. And so yes, then you know Belle is kind of trapped in the tower, kind of saying she's never gonna, she's never gonna go for this beast. She's never gonna do anything he says. And then you go back to the village and you see Gaston still just mad, mm-hmm. like he just can't, he can't get past the fact that someone said no to him, and he's just sitting there stewing it in his little uh, bar in his pub filled with antlers. Right. Well, and I, I love that. I love that. LeFou and the whole town feels it's our responsibility to cheer this poor guy up he is like he is like in the throes of sad like almost depression he's just sitting there and like just totally downtrodden this incredibly arrogant believing in himself kind of guy just from one no yeah. And, you know, and LeFou and all them have to pick him up, even though they probably all have gotten their butts kicked by this guy throughout their entire lives growing up in that town, including LeFou, who's constantly beaten up throughout this whole movie with objects and, uh, and uh, Gaston's hands. You know, and so it's it's interesting that they use the whole town to pick him back up. Well, and when uh, when the storyboard artists got the this song from Ashman and Mencken and they saw all of Ashman's lyrics, they were like the happiest storyboard <sighs> artists that ever lived because yeah. the lyrics are really, really funny. They are. And they're very descriptive of everything that yeah, he's doing. They're... So just the gags that they could do visually mm-hmm. uh, were just amazing. I mean, you know, everything from him juggling the eggs, lifting the girls, like yeah. showing his chest hair, antlers in the decoration. I mean, they just they just went to town and it is it is just such an amazing number. Agreed. For there's no one as burly and brawny. As you see, I've got biceps to spare. Not a bit of him scraggly or scrawny. That's right. And every last inch of me's covered with hair. No one gets like Gaston. Matches like Gaston. Ain't no 
spitting match, nobody spits like Gaston. I'm especially good at expectorating. <laughs> It, it reminds me in a way of like never got a friend like me just in the sense of every lyric is giving you a visual cue of yeah. this is what's supposed to be happening yeah. in this moment another thing to notice at this point right before maurice comes in is that uh it's now firmly like winter yeah you know one of the yes. things that's big about this movie is they use the seasons uh both sort of to yeah. show the budding romance and what's going on but also to deal with color right so at oh. the beginning of the movie when it's autumn uh, it's lots of browns, earth tones that helps Belle stand out in her blue, right. but also kind of like shows off the town, shows off sort of this like sort of, you know, earth colored world. And then you get into the wintertime now where, you know, you're more in the Beast Castle. It's very cold. It's very desolate. Yeah. Uh, and then that eventually leads to spring with something there mm -hmm. as the winter starts to melt. Well, and you brought up that now Maurice shows up freaked out and terrified because yeah. his daughter is being captured by a beast. He gets a lot of help. He does, they help him out the door is what they do. They help him right out the door, yeah. And, and we should take a moment to give LeFou, like, who, I don't know who the, the actor is and the voice, but, like, he is fantastic. I mean, just, just the whole portrayal and the voice that he chooses to use. As a voiceover actor, I'm listening to these things in that part, and those are the moments where you, like, you really marvel at what they're able to create. Because it is a, almost a pig-like voice because he's yeah. small, he's fat, got the right. little bulbous nose, and he's like... You know, guys, Gaston, he's got that kind of thing, and you're just like, oh, this is perfect, because it juxtaposes and still stands out um, what he's going on with, with Gaston's more classical voice. You know, it's a great back and forth, you know, and I love that. I just love what Le well, LeFou, everything LeFou does. And I just movie. love these lyrics uh, in yeah. the reprise. You know, LeFou, I'm afraid I've been thinking a dangerous this, pastime I, I, I know. know. <laughs> I mean, you know, just like, it's, it's just so good. It's great. But yeah, and this is where Gaston, you yes. know, starts to become... Uh, a little bit more villainous yeah. because now it's like, well, how do I manipulate this situation so that I can get Belle to get with me? Yeah. Um, we go back to the castle. We meet uh, our wardrobe, which is uh, Joanne Worley, I think. And now, you know, Belle, or the Beast has said, Belle can't eat. Not going to get any food, mm -hmm. but those servants are really nice people. <laughs> well, except Cogsworth, who's really trying to toe the line here. It's yeah. true. Cogsworth is really trying hard to keep things. And again, this is great, just character comedy, yeah. but he's trying so hard. You know, he's like, all right, fine. Glass of water, crust of bread. That's <laughs> it. And Lumiere's like, yeah, what's dinner without a little music? I mean, it's just like, these guys have been waiting to serve somebody for yeah. a long time, and they are going to serve, like, the realness. Yeah. And we get in to be our guest. And now, we invite you to relax. Let's pull up a chair. As the dining room proudly presents your dinner. Be our guest. Be our guest. Put our service to the test. Tie your napkin round your neck, sherry, and we provide the rest. Soup du jour, hot hors d'oeuvre. Why, we only live to serve. Try the gray stuff. It's delicious. Don't believe me? Ask the dishes. They can sing. They can dance. After all, miss, this is France. And a dinner here is never second best. Go on, unfold your menu, take a glance, and then you'll be our guest. We our guest, be our guest. It's such a great song. And yeah. this is full Hollywood musical number done to the nines. Yeah. I mean, it's Busby Berkeley. It's, and, and what I love, too, is that I love when in Be Our Guest, we just leave reality behind. Horse mm -hmm. by horse, one by one. Till you shout, get up like that. Let me sing you off to sleep as you like, yeah. 
wonder by the way we've met our main character our main servant characters are humans transformed into uh you know a clock or a yep. teacup or whatever it is and i really wonder like who are all these silver with these forks and knives and spoons it's a very like it gets a little dicey in there when mm-hmm. you start to work the logic of it because like you're like wait are all of these plates servants and right. if they break, what happens? Like, we're a little and, concerned and about this. Do they this just place. have to sit in a drawer for years? Well, like, and how years? many kids does Mrs. Potts have? Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of sleeping and, cups in there. And yeah. why does only one of them speak? Yeah, um, and but Mr. Potts. But yeah. we're going to suspend our disbelief. The sure. number, the number is great. It's really funny. Yes, Jerry Orbach's performance is stellar. Yeah. Yeah, these are my top two favorite songs. Be our guest and guest Gaston's song are my two favorite songs of the movie. They just, just, just for the showmanship of both of them, and also once again the lyrics are so well done for both of these films, uh, visually as well as like the rhyming scheme of them works so well. And one of the things, by the way, that comes out that I was just thinking again, there's a lot of screenwriting stuff in this movie that yeah. I think is really important, and one of them is the Cogsworth Lumiere conflict is that yeah. this is so... You said you always want to have conflict, even with your minor characters, and it makes it so much easier to get all your exposition out because they're arguing about what should, what should we do, and they're constantly explaining to us what the real situation is here, yeah. and it's a, so much fun. The chemistry between the two of them is great, and it it just works really, really well for yeah. the film. And then you get the West Wing. Bell, Bell sends them off, tricks them into... They think they're going to show off the library, which mm-hmm. we find, which we get to see later, and she sneaks off into the West Wing because she's curious. So we get to, you know, we get to the West Wing. It's you know this first time that she's in the Beast's territory, really. I mean, yeah. this is his, this and is, clearly his territory. Yeah, and clearly right. this yeah. is his territory. Everything else is kind of the servant's domain, but this is he's thrown his temper tantrums here. He's ripped the painting. She sees the painting. You get that iconic moment where she's kind of looking at the painting. We mm. don't see his face, but she sees this face of someone yeah. that she doesn't know who it is. She's kind of looking at it, really confused, and then she sees and of course, the rose. We know who it is. Right. We know because right. we know we've seen this amazing prologue because right. we saw the prologue. So I want to ask you guys a question because something occurred to me as I was watching this scene this particular time like because you know I've dated women I've been in relationships with women uh, they they want to ask you those questions and discover these things about you know of course Belle doesn't know that she's going to be with the beast she has no concept of it at this point because he's terrible to her but what do you guys think she's trying to do here do you think she's trying to figure out like like she wants to know everything about like the surroundings or like what do you think is happening here I mean I think that that's I think that is I think she's trying to figure out her surroundings I think that you know she whether or not she I think she's a woman of her word so if she says she's going to stay there forever I think at this point right. she's thinking she's going to stay there forever but whether she's planning to stay there forever or she's eventually looking to things with an eye towards how do I get out of here yeah. I'm told not to go to the west wing that's where the answers are yeah so yeah. I think this is a this is a character who again just the same way that she jumped on Philippe and went out to go find dad as right. soon as he was gone this is another area where Belle is shown to be an active hero like who's going to go find the answers for herself. Cool. Yeah, I mean, if I were, you know, it's like any, you're captured by the mad scientist who says, don't open this thing or yeah. don't, you know, I'm going to try to find out what that is. 
Um, I think I was jumping ahead but I was watching because in my mind I know they end up together so I was thinking oh she wants to explore this, this, these hidden secrets of him because you know I think women have this desire to explore the things about the men that they date or the men that they fall in love with because they want to know everything about them and I think it's a good thing and I thought Belle was doing that but I'm jumping ahead mentally I think, I think, I think you're it, right yeah. in that I think what's great about this movie is you see at the beginning of the movie that she has no interest in getting to know what's in Gaston or, it, right. or to be clear like there's not a lot of there there he mm-hmm. doesn't like to read there's clearly nothing in common yeah. I think at this point the beast is still the captor yeah but we're getting close to the point and this is a really big turning point which is so to get to your point she she is yelled at the beast sees that rose he gets super afraid she's going to do something to break it and he's screwed right he flips out yes i mean he's screaming it's super scary and she's like promise or no promise i'm out right and she runs and then you have the great attack with the wolves i i I gotta talk about this uh fight scene with the wolves yeah because it's really great. It's genuinely scary. I yeah. think it pushes the level of a child's animated movie in terms of its violence really far. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see him getting cut. You see the blood. And what's interesting is it does this thing that's really hard to do in fight sequences, which it makes the power of the beast really evident mm-hmm. in how powerful a figure this is mm-hmm. and simultaneously makes it hard for him and makes him vulnerable. So it's it's a battle where he you see how he's awesome mm-hmm. and you also see oh my god he's about to lose. He's right on the edge of losing mm-hmm. and he just just barely survives it. It's a really good fight scene. And once again I think it's symbolic. It's him fighting the wolves of his mind to go past these impulses of his that have been there for a long time to get to Bell. He does have feelings for her. I think he goes to save her because he's developing a, a f- affection for I, her. I, so and I think him fighting the wolves of his mind is in that it's symbolic for me. I think the wolf thing I think the wolf thing is totally valid. Yeah. I think it's fair. I would actually challenge you on the when you get into the, the how they fall in love with each other, when yeah. they fall in love with each other. I think up until this point, the beast still looks at Belle. I don't think he's in love with Belle. I think she thinks she's not pretty. in love with Belle. I, I think, think he's attracted. I don't think. I mean, he's attracted to her. Sure, yeah. she's a very attractive woman. Yeah, um, for a two D animated character. If you I, mean... The kind of thing. I mean, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> but but I think that up to this point, she is a solution. That's what I think. She too. is not a okay because here and and again it gets because he does. Why would I'm he sacrifice jump. himself like this? Because on his 25th the birthday, way, which is coming up, same, so then you so then you, re, you remove the nobility of the act if you say that. If he's only doing it to to do the solution, then he's not a noble character. And that's what I think is is not mm. correct. It's a good point. Bell is just point. as noble for doing what she did. He is just as noble I think, too. I, I don't think. I, let me let me let me let me be clear. Okay. I don't think he goes to save her because she's a solution. Great. But I think everything up to this point, you are going to stay here instead of your dad. Oh right. wait, I'm unless this was a very progressive film, I'm not going to fall in love with Maurice. Right. So you are the solution. <laughs> it's an entirely um, different movie. <laughs> <to the beast. laughs> so, so and, and then the and then everything he does to try and be nice to her. Yeah. The fun thing outside the thing, like everything is like I'm supposed to be nice because I've got to get you to love me, but I don't right. really think you will. I think that he genuinely does go get her mm-hmm. because it is dangerous out there, and he does the same thing. You actually see him if you really watch the moment he screams at her to get out of the west wing you get out knock some furniture get out like just like a kid he screams and then before you pull away from him you see the realization his eyebrows raise up and he puts his head in his hands that he's gone too far he realizes that he's done it again right so i don't think he's going out to be like let me go get this key to unlocking my humanity yeah you're right he does go out to save her because he's like god i'm such an asshole right um, for sure. Right. But he's still not, just to be clear, he's still not in love with her because he barely knows her. I agree. And Belle 
has no feelings for him, but she's like, this guy saved me. I can't let him do this. And here is like this great, important moment, yeah. which is, okay, movie's over. Right. She got away. Yeah. Yes. Beast got attacked by wolves. She went home, finds Maurice. Yep. They say, let's get out of this village. Just crazy things here. <laughs> Credits roll. Yes. Like she's free. Right. And she has that moment where she hesitates on the saddle. And she has that great moment yeah. where she's about to get up and you yeah. see that she's good. And then she stops and she realizes that this guy just saved my life. Yeah. And even though he's this bad, monstrous dude who told me I had to stay into a castle, kidnapped my dad, did all these things, she goes back and yeah. takes him back to the castle and stays. And, and I would argue that's warranted because they have had these interactions. In, in, What's your favorite scene, Mike? He is trying to be nice to her. He's trying to. I don't think and, it's. Yeah. And she sees that. Like, she may not register it fully 100%, but she sees that he's trying. And the the dresser, the woman, the dresser, female, she's saying he's not so bad once you get to know him. He's really a nice guy. Like, everybody is working to let Belle know that the Beast is not as bad as she thinks he is. I, and I think that moment is earned with her in the hesitation on the saddle because it's slowly been building through the film, in I, my mind. I, I, I disagree. Okay. It's, I mean, it's totally a fair. It's a yeah. fair. Like, I, I can see I guess where you're putting that. Yeah. I, I think that really this is just... Belle's an honorable person. Absolutely. I think, I think that she doesn't, up to this point, given the interactions that mm-hmm. she's had, I don't think when she's on the other side of that door, she's sitting there thinking, I can see he's really trying to be nice. Right. He's still the guy that locked captured me in dad. a tower and captured yes, me in yes, yes. So I don't think that she has any thought process here that's like, I'm going to stop and help him because he's really an all right fella. I think she's like, this guy just risked his life to save me. Right. And if I don't do anything he's probably gonna die in the snow right and because bell is just at heart a very good person she takes him back and i think what's really important about this is not the idea that bell actually at this point thinks i'm gonna help him because he's a good guy i think she's just doing the right thing i think for the beast he would never have expected anybody to do this for him right agreed it's another key turning point in the movie yeah and it's another sign of bell's tremendous heroism and bravery Mm -hmm. i mean both absolutely both making the sacrifice for dad at the first place and now to turn back at yeah. this moment and go back into this castle she doesn't know she nurses him back to life maybe she's back in the tower the scene where they actually do start to get something to feel right. something for each other right. which is the scene where she gives it as good as she gets it and she mm-hmm. yells at him yeah but that yeah. doesn't happen overnight and that's what i'm trying to say and that's my point and we'll let this be because it's just a matter of perspective my belief is that they have been slowly Growing an affection for each other. Now, if not, it may not be love or whatever, but there's an affection. She sees that well, he is trying to reach out to her, whether she registers it or not consciously, for all of us to see. It does not mean that it's not necessarily. I think, but there. I think I think from a script like both any, of them. No, no, no. For, and look, I think I think movies are subjective. Animated yeah. movies, any movie is subjective. So I think th- if that's what you take away from it, it that's is. totally valid. Yeah. I think to talk to anybody who is wanting to make these kind of movies, the challenge that I would put down to you is it's great that you take that away. Right. There is not a sequence in the movie up to this point that shows either of them doing the thing that you're saying you're taking away from it. Well, you say he's doing the hand in the th- because he thinks he's an asshole. He could also be doing that because he thinks he's like, hurt someone that he's he has he's starting to develop sure. an affection. No, that's a good it's a good point. And 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 I, yeah. I just totally agree with Michael, particularly in animated films. Is movie Be- fights? Um, <laughs> the, well, because in animated films, everything is a choice. Is it a slowdown? Yes. Is it a slowdown? Yeah, right. Um, in an animated film, everything is a choice in a way that it's not necessarily a choice in a live action film. Is that every facial expression, every movement, every color has been chosen specifically from scratch. 
Whereas mm-hmm. you might be on a location and that's what the location looks like. And the actor did a thing and that's just what they did that time. Mm-hmm. And they might do it differently the next time. Yeah. Whereas that in this film, and you could see every little detail of how their relationship evolves is very, very clearly thought out. And we're just going into the sequence where we see, as you say, Mm -hmm. the first time they're really starting to interact as humans. And what's great about the scene is, again, because it's very, you know, animated movies particularly, because you're, you're, you're having to, like, just get everything in there as quickly as you can. Mrs. Potts, Cogsworth, Lumiere, they've told him multiple times up to this point, you must control your temper, yes. you must control your temper. And his problem has been, repeatedly, that he hasn't controlled his temper. So now you have the mm-hmm. scene where he's cut, she's trying to clean the wound, and of course, like anyone who has a temper, he blows up. That hurts! If you'd hold still, it wouldn't hurt as much. Well, if you hadn't have run away, this wouldn't have happened. If you hadn't frightened me, I wouldn't have run away. Well, you shouldn't have been in the West Wing. Well, you should learn to control your temper. And you have this great moment where the beast opens his mouth to argue, it's, but uh, he's got yeah. nothing. Yeah. So you yeah. go, <gasps> and you actually even cut to the objects who sort of back up because like, fuck, here we go again. <laughs> and, and then it just, and then the whole scene calms down. But so that is like, Belle has tamed the beast's temper at this point. Mm-hmm. Right. Because from this point on, he doesn't lose his temper again because he cares about it. That's of what course. I'm saying. No, no, for of, sure. Of course like, he does. It's been building. But, but and no, and it, but from this point on, look, the thing, the other thing that this movie does really well yeah. is it shows a passage of time. And I think this is to be fair That's to you. That's fair. But yeah. I, but I but I think that so you do. There is clearly something happening because the very next thing that happens after this is something there. Yeah. Which is a lovely song, actually a late replacement to the film. Um, they actually this is where Human Again had originally right. gone. Mm. Um, but the problem they were having is Human Again was this huge song that that showed a long passage of time so that there was time enough for them to fall in love. Problem is, Maurice is running around in the woods this whole time. Oh, yeah. So they just couldn't get past the fact that they were showing these seasons going by and they're like, did Maurice live in a tree? Did he, like, what was he doing? So they ended up cutting it. They put in something there. And this is where, to your point, we actually see them falling in love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something sweet and almost kind but he was mean and he was coarse and unrefined and now he's dear and so unsure i wonder why i didn't see it there before because this is where it happens and literally says it in a like montage. yeah in a nice montage and you get the lovely thing with the he can't eat porridge yeah he can't use the fork Belle sort of finds the middle ground where they're both going to sip the bowls yeah. together. You have the great scene of them outside. Yeah, in the walking snow. in the snow. Yeah. Uh, another just, this is stuff. a random little anecdotal thing, but I think it's very funny, is that when Paige O'Hara, who did the voice of Belle, was singing something there, there's that great line, new and a bit alarming. Yeah. And she kept singing it, new and a bit alarming. Mm-hmm. And Howard Ashman, who was literally could barely speak, he was very, very sick at this oh, point, wow. but he didn't like how she was doing it. And he's it. listening on the phone. And he's listening on the phone. Oh. And he says, he says, just tell her, tell her Streisand. And so she goes, new and a bit alarming. And that's like, that's the way it sounds. But it is like, as a, as a gay musical theater nerd, that makes me laugh so hard. But that's exactly how it happened. That's great. New and a bit alarming. Who'd have Um, and yeah, and it's a beautiful part where where you finally get yeah. the belt, the beast saying, yeah. 
I've never felt like this before. Yes. And, and I just, because I want to highlight it, is that it's so important to realize that one of the driving creative forces on this movie is literally making it on his deathbed. Yeah. You know, at wow. that point, he's so ill. He's, he's listening in on these recording yeah. sessions. And apparently he was great with performance and great with singers. Yeah. And he continually is fighting for making his movie better at the very, very end yeah. of his life. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, yeah. that's yeah. powerful. It's, it's just... And then and again, you know, to your point, they do fall in love very fast. It's an animated movie mm-hmm. of 83 minutes. Of course. But in the time that they allot to this... They show them both coming together, compromising on different things. And then he does a thing. You literally, you know, in contrast to Gaston, who the first thing he says to Belle after the opening number is, how do you read this? There's no pictures. It's not right for a woman to read. Soon she starts getting ideas and thinking. And the Beast gives her... A library that looks just like the Barnes and Nobles at the Grove. Yes. Right. Which is yeah, what I think every time I go into the Barnes and Nobles at the Grove. <laughs> That's um, but but yeah, and it's like so in the limited space they have to show how this relationship grows and develops, yeah. he gives her the one thing that she loves more than anything else. Well, he listens to her. Exactly. He knows what she needs, right? Yep. Whereas Gaston's trying to tell her what she needs. I mean, technically he listened to Lumiere who heard the book well, thing. Well, but yes, true. he took some really good <laughs> advice from his very pimp friend. So hey, hey, sometimes you friends let's help you out yeah that's I very mean, important you know cogsworth was over here saying give her some chocolates and some promises you don't intend to keep that was and Lumiere's so like look i know she likes books brah so i think she he went with the right servant that's one of my favorite lines <laughs> well it's always a standard thing flowers chocolates promises you don't intend to keep i love that and line. by the way that's improvised is it really that's an improvised oh, it's line. such yeah. a great awesome. line man yeah. it's my, one of my favorite yeah. lines from him um yep. I, I think we're moving right into uh our big dance number wow. well unless you watch the special edition right where you oh. get where again. you actually do get human again which because i watched they actually oh. again human again uh was not in the original movie yeah. did get put in the broadway musical right. uh so subsequently in the special edition they put it in there so it's a it's a lovely number and the movie the movie works just as well without it it's a very nice song but i think that at this point from a pacing yeah. standpoint you do see how they're falling in love yeah and going and stopping to see how the how mrs potts wants to Mm-hmm. Be an, a little old bitty again doesn't really get anywhere because you do want to get to because the the movie is what is making the movie drive forward is yeah. Beauty and the Beast yeah. right now that song I just I think I just saw it for the first time watching it yeah. this time yeah. I had never seen it before so for me it was like oh what's this yeah, it's jarring you know it was jarring and maybe maybe if that hadn't happened I would experience it differently but it's like I'm moving forward really yep. well no, yeah. totally and I get I get I I love those characters yeah, yeah, yeah. but I don't need this song yeah. yeah. Um, so we move into Beauty and the Beast. Uh, Angela Lansbury s- oh, singing it. So beautiful. So she didn't. She she was not about this song. What? When she originally heard the demo, it sounded a little bit too. Uh, I believe she said rock and rolly. It sounded a little too. So she did. She didn't like the song. They were gonna have someone. <laughs> well, she else heard sing it. Menken's demo of it. Yeah, she heard oh. Menken's demo. She didn't hear Ashman's demo of it. She didn't. She didn't. She wasn't feeling it. <laughs> they brought her in. They said, Angela, listen. Just will you sing it once for safety, just in case. You're right. She sang it one time. What? That's a one take song one in that take. movie. Wow. One take Angela. And she is she is the way she sings that song, visually to me, it is a person walking the thinnest tightrope 
possible throughout through the, through like across two buildings like the World Trade Center or the World whatever wow. they the guy like that's what I hear because I'm picturing hits, Angela Lansbury on a tightrope which is <laughs> well, weird I just mean the vo- the vocal quality of it is delivered so tenderly so softly that any movement left or right the song falls apart and I think she does such a great job of just balancing the right Alan Menken talks a lot about how this was a really hard song this was the hardest song for them in the movie wow um, it's such because a song. it's and and, and per- particularly because nobody calls Belle beauty. Yeah, her true. name does mean beauty, but true. this whole Beauty and the Beast is the name of the movie. Yes, it is not anything that's inherent to like these characters. Like, look at Belle, right. Belle, and, Belle and Prince Adam falling in love. Like right. you know, like they're, they're, it's it's a very weird turn of phrase that they manage to turn into this beautiful ballad. Yeah. Uh, that is is one of the one of the great Disney classics. Agreed. I, it has been so stuck in my head for the last ten days. <laughs> I, everywhere I go, yeah. I'm hearing "Tale as Old as Time." Tale as old as time, true as it can be. <laughs> Barely even friends. Then somebody bends. Unexpectedly Just a little change Small to say the least Both a little scared Neither one prepared Beauty and the beast And as you said, this is the, you know, the the use of CG in this moment, oh, man. Uh, this the CG ballroom yeah. is you know Disney Disney had already done some limited CG in their movies. I believe Oliver and Company had some CG cars in the city. Yeah. Little Mermaid, uh, uh, I think Grace Mount Detective used uh, in the Clock Tower scene at the end with Radigan, and then Little Mermaid has a scene where Ariel runs down the stairs right. that are all using CG for the first time, so that they could actually utilize camera movements, which you can't do in traditional two D animation right. aside from panning and zooming. Um, but this was where people really were blown away for the first time by something. The way that the camera swoops through the ballroom uh, yeah. and they're dancing in it. It's, it's one of the great Disney moments of all time. And, and we already talked about in uh, Wrath of Khan, the very first bit of CG animation, yep. which is Pixar in the Genesis planet. Yep. And now we have Pixar again. And this is at that time before... Um, you know, before Toy Story, mm-hmm. where Pixar is primarily a technology company, mm-hmm. yeah. they're owned, still owned by Lucas at this point, I think, um, or maybe they'd just been sold to Steve Jobs. Yeah. And you know, they developed this as uh, what's it called? It's the uh, digital transfer technology. Okay. This is the second movie that it's used on. This is the second movie where animation stills are transferred digitally, and that was yeah. developed by Pixar. The and computer animated uh, computer animation programming caps caps. That's what yeah. it is. Computer animation programming. Says, yeah, rescuers, and well, in addition to the to the CG. Uh, I mean, this revolutionized all of animation. Little Mermaid was the last movie for Disney that was hand-painted. Mm. Rescuers Down Under was the first movie that utilized Pixar's cap system where they digitally painted everything, which sounds like, I mean, aside from not having an entire department of people literally hand-painting cells, it gave you the opportunity to use every color in the world. So when you look right. at Ariel, somebody's painting that flesh color, that red color, any shadow you see somebody painted it. With Beauty and the Beast, they're allowed, they can actually, like, the, the fact that Mrs. Potts' cheeks have rouge on them that fade, yeah. that was revolutionary. Right. Thanks to mm. Pixar. And mm-hmm. the, way, the, the way they do camera movements within this scene, I mean, I still remember seeing it in the theater. It is yeah. just gorgeous and complete. You, you just go like, oh, we're literally in a different world all of a sudden. Yeah, yep. yeah it's my, one of my favorite scenes, bar none, of any animated film. Just beautiful. And because we've been building to it from the montage and everything and that whole entire relationship, there's it's just and the colors are so vibrant, so 
Like if you believe in love, those kinds of moments like are really powerful. But on only screen. if you believe in love. Well, <laughs> no wonder it didn't seem that you know powerful what? to only me. If you, you know believe. what? <laughs> you kiss my ass. I'm just saying. Hey. <laughs> yes. I love you. They'll stop it. it. I'm just saying it. I, 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 I love you. Let's go dance. I love you too. <laughs> but I, I, this is Hail such a great. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, who's the beast? Uh, I like we this. all know. Yeah. Okay, shut up. But I, I just love this sequence. <laughs> I love this sequence. It is just. It just really. It, once again, it's one of these moments in the film that transcends the genre. It transcends. You almost forget you're watching an animated film. Yeah. And that's a, that's powerful. And what do we do when we have this powerful loving yeah. moment? It's time to end it because our yeah. job in making a love story. Yeah. is not to let them have love. And so in the moment where they are closest together, yep. she says, I want to know what happened to my dad. Yep. He shows her the magic mirror. Dad's in trouble. And now Beast, it's time for him to do, mm-hmm. to make a huge sacrifice. Yep. And he lets her go. Well, and, it's, and, it is, and it mirrors very well, to your yep. point, it mirrors very well. Belle as, Belle, as the person who was the captive, reached a point where she could escape and chose not to. Right. And Beast reaches a point as the captor where... She's ready to stay. You're good. Yeah. Like yeah. she's in. Like yeah. you, you're you've done it, dude. Mm-hmm. And because he actually loves her, he lets her go. Yep. And that is that's just it's great. It's great storytelling. It's amazing. You see the pain. Yeah. Uh, and oh yeah. When he roars when she leaves. Oh, yeah. Man. That shot where she's rough. She's riding off on Philippe, and he just roars at the sky mm-hmm. in pain and frustration and anger. Again, have to bring it up. Given where Howard Ashman was in his life and what he was yeah. going through, it kind of even makes yeah. it more poignant when you go watch that. Well, and uh, the act, the voice acting from Robbie this time around brought a tear to my eye. Like Robbie Benson, what he does when he says, when Lumiere says, "What? Why did you?" Because I love her. Like there was just Cogsworth, but yes, oh, Cogsworth. Sorry, Cogsworth. Who says because I love her? Like it's just so powerful. Because you're right. Yeah, those are those moments. Like yeah, that shows you. Yeah, sometimes you gotta let it go. Sometimes you have to think of more than just your selfish needs in that moment. It's powerful. Well, it's funny. I was thinking as while watching this that yes, Disney movies are the movies where dreams do come true. Yeah. But yeah. in the really good ones, we're going to go through a lot of pain yep. and sacrifice and struggle to yep. get there. Totally. You know, that, that yes, the wish will come true, but it's not going to be easy. Yeah. So Bell runs back to save dad. Dad's about to be carted off to the insane asylum. Yeah. Once again, Gaston being a villain, setting that whole thing up well, in and the this tavern. Is where, yeah, I mean, in the tavern scene, Gaston really, his villainy comes to, to bear. Yeah. But, but you see, again, Gaston does a really good job of going from... All right, you're not a villain, but you're a dick. Yeah, yeah. To, all right, you're really a dick. <laughs> to, ooh, you're a dick and you're kind of nasty and that's really fucked up. To, this is this is his moment. Yeah. Because this is full on, I'm going to go kill an innocent person. Yes. And I like that they dragged out some villain from a Scooby-Doo movie to play the head of the asylum. Because that, yep. to me, took me a little bit out of the movie, that guy. Because he's like... There's nothing wrong with. Here's the thing that throws me that throws throws me off about this guy when you go watch it, and this is just great sound design, which I believe Beauty and the Beast was actually nominated for an Oscar for sound design, and I think it's because of this moment (laughs) when that guy, when the asylum guy, rubs the coin to see if it's legit. It sounds like his fingers are snakeskin. It is this scaly, creepy grossness that every time I watch the movie, I want to go vomit because it's so gross. Go listen to it. It's the worst. Play it on the podcast. Done. It will be in. It's like this. I've got my heart set on marrying Belle, but she needs a little persuasion. I'm listening. Everyone knows her father's a lunatic. So Belle has proven that there is a beast yes. by showing him the mirror. 
which seems like a poor choice, and proven that she's in love with the Beast, uh, visibly to Gaston. It's, it's, it seems it seems that he infers that. Absolutely. Yes, infers that. I'm sorry. He, yeah, um, it, well, it's a it's a, it's one of those great leaps mm-hmm. in uh, in animation. Is like you're you're at the end of the movie, and so you just have the character say the thing that he didn't quite get, but the but the audience knows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Bell goes, he, you know, my dad's not crazy. Look, yes, he's really kind and gentle. Yeah. And Gaston goes, you have feelings for this monster. You're like, well, you could have said that about a dog too, right? But like, you, you we, we, the audience knows that Bell. We, we know yeah. that Bell is in love at this yeah. point. So Gaston saying it, we're like, okay, we got it. Let's go. Let's do this thing. Then you get to the mob song, which is oh. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Through the woods, through the darkness and the shadows It's a nightmare, but it's one exciting ride Say a prayer, then we're there at the drawbridge of a castle And there's something truly terrible inside It's a beast, he's got fangs, razor sharp ones Massive paws, killer claws for the feet Hear him roar, see him foam, but we're not coming home till he's dead Good and dead! Kill the beast! you do this you're not with us you're against us bring the old man get your hands off me we can't have them running off to warn the creature let us out we'll rid the village of this beast who's with me and this song which is you know gaston using fear and terror to get the rabble together and i said this recently to somebody and it's really funny because i watched this movie as a kid and i was like the one thing that always bugged me is these these villagers at the beginning, maybe they didn't get Bell, but they weren't necessarily evil. Right. And then at the end of the movie, they turned so quickly to yeah. doing such horrible things. And I was like, as a, as, a, as a naive child, I was like, that seems unrealistic. Now as an adult living in the world that we live in, I go, <laughs> oh, nope, that's legit. <laughs> well, and the way they were fawning over Gaston in the Gaston song. Yeah. Like it's like oh he he wanted to force marriage on someone and now he's bummed and the town rallies around mm-hmm. him, well, you know. And, and again, I mean, like it's it, it, it Howard Ashman just nailing it with these lyrics that yeah. really lay out how a mob happens. Yeah, we don't like what we don't understand it and it scares us. Yeah, as long as there's a leader that we uh, revere or trust to rile us up and instill that fear that was not there before. Uh, then we'll go with him, and that's what happens here in this moment. It's almost prescient what he what this film does in this moment because you see it now in our society. You just need that one person to make everybody afraid, and they do these incredible, these I mean, terrible Gaston things. Twitter, if Gaston had oh, Twitter, oh, Gaston had Twitter, well, and, and this is... is really unsuccessful. Sad, <laughs> sad, and. <laughs> Bell, not as popular. Over what, what, what do you call it? Uh, uh, overrate, overrated, overrated Bell. Overrated, overrated beauty. Bell. Overrated Bell, reading too many books. Reading too Likes many books. the beast. Sad. Sad. <laughs> Just to take it back to 91. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it, you know, it's telling. This is written by a guy dying of AIDS. Yeah. You know, and, this, and, and we have to remember that in the late 80s and early 90s, it was not like it is today. It was yeah. not like it is today. Yeah. You know, and the idea of that these that someone dying of AIDS must be evil is being punished for what, you know. Oh yeah, interesting. I mean it's it's No, it's all there. I mean oh, it's wow. it's 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 not even subtext when you really wow. know what's going on. It's it, it makes the beast story so much more touching, which was already wow. touching because Disney did such an amazing job, and yeah. it really does add this extra layer. Wow. Um, and yeah, and then you also get at this moment, it's it's one of those great songs that does a good job of just moving the entire story forward. So yep. you have a lot of things happening during this song. You have the villagers marching on the Beast's castle. You've got Belle 
uh, with the assistance of Chip, who stowed away. Yes. And Maurice and his uh, weird wood chopping invention <laughs> escaping so that they can get back. Probably not my favorite part of the movie. That's where I kind of go, really? Chip's there and the wood chop- Okay, it's just fine. It's Listen, fine. Yeah. You know, oddly enough, Chip uh, had a very small role originally in the movie. The cute character was supposed to be a music box, but the animators mm. and the directors liked the voice direct, the voice acting of the kid who did Chip so much that music box got the axe and Chip got a much elevated role. Wow. Um, but yeah, so you have uh, all that happening and then you have the objects realizing that the t- castle is under attack. Mm-hmm. And this leads to just, as someone who's grown up loving animation, I love when... A bunch of animals, objects, and or other things have a giant funny attack sequence. The Little Mermaid did it well when all of the sea creatures and birds come to stop Vanessa's wedding. But then they doubled down in Beauty and the Beast with just the amazing battle between the enchanted objects and the villagers. It's really funny. It's great. And Cogsworth shines. Cogsworth shines in this whole sequence as this like leader of them trying to get him going and everything oh, like Cogsworth that. It was so his fantastic. Little hat. His, little hat, his little Napoleon hat. Sliding is down the banister with yes. the sign of a sound of dive bomber as he comes down. <laughs> and he, he, does, he does great. And uh, I love the oven. Yes. The oven sure. in, the, in the kitchen is great. Yeah. And then uh, the wardrobe basically killing a man. Uh, yeah. I mean, it seems that, way. that man doesn't survive that. <laughs> Nobody survives that. <laughs> so we have a really funny fight scene. Yes. And which, then- which, by the way, I just want to say, I mean, this is actually a key thing that you deal with when you're making an animated feature, which, to your point, this is what Pixar does great. It's what the best Disney films are. They're not made for kids. Right. But they are made with the knowledge that kids are coming. Right. And one of the really interesting things that, that animated movies are really able to do is to turn on a dime like that. Yeah. yeah. That, that you're, you're in the mob song. You're in We're Coming to Kill the Beast. And because that might be getting a little intense and you know you're about to have this super intense moment for your finale – you put this scene here and you make it as fun as possible mm-hmm. so that, you know, it, it, it balances it out for your younger audience. Yeah. Right. We're going to have getting poked in the butt and yeah. we're going to have uh, someone who ends up in women's clothing and we're going to have all the silly stuff. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to jump right back into a really heavy, violent scene yeah. with uh, Gaston stalking and shooting yeah. the beast. Oh my gosh. Well, and they do such a great job here in that uh, the beast has literally given up. Yep. Oh, yeah. I mean, when Gaston shows up, he doesn't care. Nope. He gets shot, shot with an arrow, yep, shot an with arrow. an arrow, doesn't care. Mm-hmm. He's done. Yep. He's given up. He's accepted his fate. He's going to let himself go. And then he sees Belle. Yep. Yeah. And everything changes. The transformation with him is just tremendous. Yes. And it's great, too, because you see guests on just have this, oh, shit. Yeah. What have I gotten myself into here? Right. Yeah. Because the beast is scary. Yeah. And again, taking this whole kind of uh, through line of his temper. He goes to town on Gaston. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he's got him, hanging him over the thing, and you can see that the beast is mad. Yeah. And Gaston just wimps out. I mean, just pusses out completely. Yeah. It's just like, let me go. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. I'll do anything. And you do this great, again, it's the great acting and animation, and Glenn Keane just killing it, is the beast's eyebrows. I think one raises first, and then the other one, yeah. and you go from like intense anger to realization yeah. that this is not who I am. Yep. And this is not who I want to be. And so this guy who literally could not control his temper at the beginning of the movie throws Gaston down and just tells him to get out. Just, I'm done with you. You're not important. Yeah. It's funny. I, I was thinking about it watching it this time that, you know, if the Beast knew anything about Gaston, 
he might make a different choice. Sure. Because for Gaston sure. is not treated well. Yeah, it's probably best that he does. Um, right. But but for the movie, for our story, yeah. it yeah. is right that he makes the choice not to kill. Yep. Bell shows up. They have their reunion. We and think everything's going to be okay. Gaston just, boom, yeah, with the knife. With the knife. In the back. And it's really funny. I will say that one thing that always bugged me as a kid, and this, I, this, says, I, this gets in my weird bloodlust issues, mm-hmm. is I always Hold wanted... On. Wait, you what? have bloodlust so Clearly, I do, because I always... It's great that Gaston dies. Like, I'm glad he dies. I'm glad he falls into the pit at the bottom. But it's like, I almost wanted it to be like, no, knock him off, man. Like, no. he just kind of falls. There's no nobility. If he, he's not noble if he You know what you him. wanted? No, I agree. I'll tell oh, okay. you what you wanted. What I want? You wanted an Al at the end of Die Hard moment, and Bell killed him. I mean, yeah. Wow. Who doesn't want that? No, what, once again, you ruin the nobility of the characters. If you, no, no, you are right. John is, no, John is right. John is you, right. If you actively kill Gaston, you ruin the nobility it, of Disney, the Disney does an amazing job yes. Of, yes. of having your heroes <laughs> kill but not kill the right. villains. Exactly. Like you didn't do it, so you're good, but, but also they're dead. dead. It, yeah. well, and Gaston dies from his own hubris. His desire to kill the beast in order to have Bell is the reason why he falls the way he yes. falls. Because he is in a precarious position in the stabbing well, and of again, the beast. And, and so yeah, ultimately it is Gaston's yeah. fault. Beast lets him go. Yes. He could have left. He could have yes. taken his dignity. He could have walked out. The beast lets him go. Bell doesn't care about him. And right. yes, it is his own hubris that does kill him. So yeah. it, it is it is the proper way to do it. Even <laughs> if as a kid I wanted the beast to just knock him off the roof. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. And now the beast dies. Yeah. This, oh. everything about this... Yeah. Alan Menken's score to the transformation sequence, the effects, the animation on the beast, the animation on Bell saying I love you, every single thing about this is a thousand percent perfect. Yes. Yeah, I agree. It is so moving. Yeah. Yeah. It really gets you. Yep. And the visual is moving as well. This large animal just lying there and her head on his chest. Like there's a visual to that that's really powerful and moving. Yes, definitely. And I think also, you know, in this age of computer animation, in this age where we do everything digitally, that transformation is hand drawn. Yeah. yeah, like the claw to the hand, the 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 animal kind of hoof, whatever, to, yeah. you know, to paw to the foot, and then the transformation of the beast into Prince Adam. Yeah, well, it, and even the drapery of the fabric yeah. is so, and it's so Renaissance. I don't know if it's Michelangelo they're referencing, but it's so mm-hmm. clearly Glenn Keane's looking at classic Renaissance paintings, and the lighting is just so gorgeous in yeah. that moment of the transformation. And then we see Prince Adam. Yes, yes, we do for the first time. Which uh, is a, he's a very divisive prince, as far as people who are into that type of thing. Some oh, really? people think he's very hot. Some people think that he's not as handsome as he was when he was the Beast. What? That's how I feel. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think he's great. I think he's a hottie, like what? the hair. People, uh, this is an argument people have. Well, it was interesting. So I listened to the commentary track, and the directors were also saying, "You know what? We're not big fans of him either." Like they were kind of like not love. But I get though. Here's <laughs> what? what. Here's the thing: is the Beast is so awesome. And he's such yeah. an amazing visual character yeah. that you go like, oh, now I'm left with this guy. You don't get a lot with Prince. You don't get a lot of time with Prince Adam. You, so get a lot of time with you Prince can't Adam. judge Prince Adam. I'm not, ju- listen, I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm not judging the person. I just, I, I just I also love think, looking at the piece. And, and this is where this is where you do get the fact that Belle did not know that the painting she saw was him. Is she right. looked at the eyes? Yeah. And then says, it is you. Yes. So this is where she does realize that, oh, you are the guy in the painting that right, I saw. Right. Uh, and actually, Glenn Keane, the animator, also. Kind of wished he had stayed a beast and uh, had Paige O'Hara record a line that was right around here or in the end where it's like, do you think you could grow a beard? Oh, really? Uh, Uh, Which they didn't put in, unfortunately, but it's a very funny line kind of like showing that Belle liked liked him. (laughs) Belle liked her big hairy fella. 
Um, but yeah, and so then you get the other objects. You get to see Lumiere and Cogsworth, Mrs. Potts and Chip, all yeah. in their human forms for the first time. And uh, and you and then it's just like it's full bore into the finale where you get the whole final dance sequence, which is reused animation from Sleeping Beauty. Oh wow, that's um, hilarious! Which is because it hey don't broke don't 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 fix it if it ain't broke. <laughs> yeah right. Do you think do you think uh, Maurice ends up with Mrs. Potts? There's so, I I do I do right. There's such a little moment. Yeah, and it's very small, yeah. and they don't make a lot of it. But yeah. yes. I agree. I, I mean, don't think I don't think the back and forth between Cogsworth and Lumiere is necessary. I understand why they did it in humans, but I don't think it's necessary. You gotta you gotta give them a moment. You I know, guess like, so. Yeah, I mean, you where can't... they fight. I mean, I, the moment where they come back together and they're friends with each other. End it there. The extra fighting stuff. I was like, well, eh, mm. that's I like I like it just because we've seen their conflict throughout the movie. Yeah. So it's like I love I love that they have this like joyous moment. I mean, if I had a really close friend who I had known for years and years and years and yeah. gone to college with that and you bickered with occasionally. bickered with occasionally. Yes. Like, you know, it's like, oh, we're so happy that we're human again. Yeah. And then we would go right back to bickering. I don't know. Not, who naming, that... not naming any specific names. I don't know who would do that with you. That seems, I don't know. That seems incorrect. So Schmoes knows. <laughs> Shut up. So the, yes. response, the response of the movie is huge. And it's not only uh, just a huge audience response and yeah. a huge box office response, but it gets a tremendous critical response, unlike any animated film in history. Yeah. And it's actually the first animated film to be nominated for Best Picture. Right. I mean, yeah, you can actually look at the fact that there is an animated film category in the Oscars now and track that right back to Beauty and the Beast. Like yeah. They kind of reach a point where they're like, man, we really got to we got to do something because these movies are getting better and better yeah. and better. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and deservedly so. Um, and the question I wanted to ask you is, is how do you think Beauty and the Beast changes things? Cause I think this is like a seminal moment in animation. I think, I mean, look, I think when you get into the way, uh, female characters are treated in movies, Beauty and the Beast was for, for sure a turning point. Mm. I love Little Mermaid and I love Ariel, but we all can agree with the fact that, you know, Ariel's driving feature is I fell in love with this dude that I barely know. And I'm going to give up my entire life to go be with him. Yeah. Right. Uh, and for Belle, they, they went out of their way to do the opposite. Mm. You know, they, they really went out of their way to go to show the female character. But I mean, look across the board, you look at this, this was, as I was saying, and you were saying, uh, Pixar's caps technology. This is one of the big, big movies that really, really featured it because not so many people saw rescuers down under, Mm. uh, the, this solidified the idea of the Disney musical. Um, because you know, Disney had not, we all associate that as just, it's almost, a given that these princess movies are going to be these epic musicals, but until Ashman and Mencken came along with Little Mermaid, that hadn't happened for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is at a moment where the the movie musical has ceased to exist. I mean, the movie yeah. movie musical from the 30s, the beginning of sound pictures, until the late 60s was just every year there's going to be a whole bunch of musicals. Yep. And then, and in the 60s, mid-60s, there are these huge, we have West Side Story, we have Sound of Music, we have My Fair Lady, huge, huge successful musicals. And then in the late 60s, with things like Dr. Doolittle and Thoroughly Modern Midi, they're all bombs, yeah. you know? And, and so Hollywood goes, we don't really make musicals anymore. And there are a few musicals over the next 15 years, but very few. Yep. And, and Disney animated movies is where the movie musical revives. You know, like suddenly these are where we get to go see musicals. Yep. They don't exist anywhere else, you know, with, with a couple of very small exceptions. That's a yep. huge difference. And I think this doesn't actually answer your question, but I think another thing that uh, always really strikes me with Beauty and the Beast is that when Disney tells a story, it becomes the definitive version. Yep. Totally I think what, true. I, what I find so interesting, particularly with the live action movie about to come out, uh, you know, what, what do we say? 25 years later? What is it? 20, 26. 26 years later. Mm-hmm. The next however many generations of kids are never going to know 
a Beauty and the Beast story that doesn't have Gaston, Lumiere, Cogsworth, Mrs. Right. Potts. That mm-hmm. you know, this is sort of the legacy of Disney, and ultimately, in this case, the legacy of Howard Ashman and Alan Menken is that this has become the version of Beauty and the Beast. Uh, there is no other version in kids' minds, and I think that's so amazing, just from like a storytelling standpoint. Yeah. Absolutely. So, John, what are yes. your final thoughts on Beauty and the Beast? I think this is, was great to revisit again. As a guy who's not necessarily running to go see animated films all the time, uh, because you're my friend, I go to see these films with you and, and whatever, Michael. But like, oh, okay, interesting. Is, but no, I'm remember Beauty that next and the Beast time. is not one that I've run to go and see. Neither is Little Mermaid. I don't run to go see. But Aladdin I will watch on a 24-hour loop. There are certain ones that appeal to me. Beauty and the Beast didn't always appeal to me. Little Mermaid doesn't at all, other than the songs. But like, there's something about this that is a film that is beyond animation and to me that's where I can appreciate the movie on so many levels because of the writing the acting the animation work the pacing of the story the actual story like you said fleshing out the original story here giving giving the characters all of that there's so much vibrant life in this movie not just in the colors but everything that's going on for the hour and a half that you're watching it it's so fun to go on this journey and you are you are taxed emotionally, and more so than you would be in more in in other animated films, and it's done. And it's earned. It's earned throughout the entire movie, and I think that's what's that is always a lasting legacy for me of any film. Can you keep go back and rewatch it and revisit those emotions that you had the first time you watched it? And with Beauty and the Beast, I did again as I only watched it two days ago again, and the emotions are still very powerful within me because there's something about the Beast. That as a man myself personally who has dealt with my anger issues growing up through uh, through uh, uh, my teen years and my 20s and at times in my 30s, there's something about the beast that I understand and gravitate and know. My heart is good, but there are times where the feelings to the, the, the anger to protect my feelings, to protect being hurt again, overpowers that. And those moments are still relatable and connectable for me. And so that makes the whole film itself very powerful for me every time I watch it. Yeah. What about you? Um, I mean, for me, this is like a storytelling benchmark. It's an animation benchmark. As someone who works in animation, who uh, loves working in animation, who wants to be doing stories like this, this is one of those stories that is like, this is what I strive to do. I think, as John said, it's, it's, it's kind of rocking on almost every level. Uh, and again, I think that you know there, there are certain people in life that I hold up in a level of reverence. Walt Disney is one of them mm. um, for everything he did for animation and everything he's done. Um, and Howard Ashman is another one. Just the more, mm-hmm. the more that I, as right. I was growing up, the more that I learned about how much Howard Ashman brought to these things mm-hmm. and what Howard Ashman did uh, in addition to just writing amazing lyrics and putting together the songs, but yeah. really crafting these stories and putting himself into them. I think that he did it with Little Mermaid. He did it with Aladdin. But Beauty and the Beast is where... It shines brightest yep. to me. Yep. I, I agree with all of that, and I, 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 it's funny in watching this. I, first of all, the thing I responded to was that in terms of story structure, this is really, really tight. Mm-hmm. And so, just as a thing to study for screenwriters, how you put the characters together and advance them, what steps are happening at each moment, what is required to move the story forward, it's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was more interesting to me was thinking about that this is in a it's a weird kind of two hander. 
because it's it's Bell's story and it's the Beast story. And you have in Bell's story a character who f- is really fully formed from the beginning. Yeah. She doesn't have to grow or change. She's heroic and independent and intelligent and all of that is within her from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And at the same time you have this character who has to go through tremendous changes in order to become who he has to become mm-hmm. and deal with as you said deal with anger and pain and loneliness and overcome all of that to find love. And I can't think of a lot of movies that are structured that way. Um, and it was really moving to me. And then particularly listening to you, Mike, talk about Howard Ashman, it just reinforced more and more how you, a great artist can transform pain into something beautiful. Yeah. Like you don't think of this as a maudlin or painful or heavy movie, mm-hmm. but all of that life stuff that he's going through comes out in the movie, sometimes in just great joy yeah. and, and, and great beauty. And it, and uh, it's, it was really, really fun revisiting it again. One thing I, one, thing, one more thing I'll say because I saw this somewhere. It's a really beautiful piece of art that I saw. I can't, I can't remember where, but it really made me think because you know, obviously, we all know the lesson of Beauty and the Beast is that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, mm-hmm. and to all of us, that means that Belle sees the prince within. Uh, where nobody else does. But an interesting thing when you think about certain lines in the movie, you know, Belle, when she goes to see her father, says, do you think I'm odd? Because she knows that everyone thinks she's odd. And even though Gaston is telling her that he wants to marry her, her feeling is that Gaston doesn't really see her. Yeah. And so as much as as much as Belle does go through this movie and sees the beast, sees the prince within the beast, I think there's also something really beautiful about the way that nobody really sees Belle for Hmm. who she is fully. Yes. Until she gets to this castle and meets the beast mm-hmm. as well, that that he kind of sees the true beauty in her, not just the beauty on the outside, just as she sees the true beauty in him. So I think that's kind of a cool thing to think about. Yeah. And there was some image that I saw that was kind of her looking in a mirror at herself in her dress or something that made huh. me think of that. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So that's what we think about Beauty and the Beast. Of course, we'd love to hear what you think. You can visit us on our Facebook page. That's at the Cinephile, C-I-N-E dash F-I-L-E-S. But if you want to subscribe to us on Stitcher, no dash, just two words. Of course, we always want you to come review us on iTunes. It helps us a lot. It helps to get the show out. The show has had a, we've really found a lot of new listeners yeah. lately, and it just means a lot. So keep those reviews coming. They they really, really help. We, I, we also, you can go to YouTube and subscribe to us on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Just search for the cinephiles and maybe right now because we're just starting off search for the cinephiles and morris because i want you to look for me <laughs> yes mostly more because john roca has like a million things on youtube and i really don't so it's easier to find if you search for me sure um and just so, so you popular know, just so you know we're about to launch a patreon campaign we are and that will be your opportunity to help us support the show it's not happened yet but it's coming very soon so we'll give you details on that when we have it yep. as always you can reach me on twitter at sr morris john where can they reach you you guys can always uh, reach me at the Roca says R O C H A on Twitter and on Instagram. And uh, like, I want to echo what Steve said. Thanks for everybody who's come on board. Thanks everybody for tweeting at us when you're coming on board and 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 passing it around and telling people about our show. We've really increased listenership, and it means a lot to both of us. And it keeps us going to do this because we we really enjoy doing it for you all. Uh, and Mike, if someone wants to reach you, how would they do that? Uh, you can reach me at MKToon, M-K-T-O-O-N, at Twitter or on Instagram. And uh, hey, say hey. Let's talk about some cartoons. Let's do it. <laughs> there you go. 
Well, we had a great time talking about cartoons with you on the Cinephiles. Yeah. We'll definitely have you back. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. We've done a comic book movie, a science fiction action movie, and an animated movie. What's I wonder what our next genre is. I mean, be. listen, if you just want to like stick me in the animation category moving forward, <laughs> I'm more than okay with that because I could really talk about that all day. I feel uh, like a musical might be next. Uh, or soap dish. Or soap dish. Soap dish. That might be a guilty pleasure right, when we do. You, 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 <laughs> you heard it here first. All right, that's it for this week. We will see you next time on the Cinephiles. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.